0: like scary movies.
1: Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You making
0: popcorn? Uh-huh.
1: What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk talk to me. Hi everybody. I'm George and welcome to the Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made according to our guest at least. <laughs> And today's guest finished the Rush discography on Podrick Angels. Cinema Joes has lamentedly departed. I said, let's get this guy back on the air. Please welcome Justin Mancini. <laughs> wow, that's uh, that's an intro. Thanks. <laughs> yes, happy to have you here, Justin. How you doing, man?
0: I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, Podrick Angels, uh, you know, very near and dear to my heart. Certainly a very different thing uh, than maybe you're used to discussing on this show. Yeah, I'll probably I'll probably get into that a little bit later of where to find that uh, for any Rush fans out there. I know they're out there.
1: Hell yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Well, you're looking at one right now. Um, Oh, nice. (laughs) Why why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror, where it started, if you're generally a fan or if you're more like, oh, I like certain elements of horror, but it's not an everyday kind of thing. I have an interesting journey with horror. I feel like I didn't
0: really become a fan of it until about 2014, which is uh, roughly 10 years ago now. And I'd be curious if there are any other guests you've had where this has been the case. But I would say if there was a sort of threshold film for me, it was The Babadook. Wow. Um, That was one where there was so much critical talk from all these people that I loved talking about it. And talking about it in a way that, to me, it was like, oh, wait, a horror movie can do that? Like, I thought they <laughs> were just kind of there to for, like, cheap scares and jump scares right. and that kind of thing. And I remember um, Mark Kermode, who's one of my favorite critics, talking about it. He actually named it his favorite film of 2014. And I was like, okay, I need to add this to my massive list of 2014 movies to see. It was, <laughs> like, one of the last ones I saw, and it, it kind of blew me away. It was, like, even better than I expected. It was so grounded. It was turned me into an SC e. Davis fan for life. And I was like, if this is what this film is capable of, I have to see what other things in the genre can do. And so I just ended up watching pretty much all the films that would get like the raves. And it took me a while to start watching maybe some of the classic horror movies and seeing that, oh, these films, they're not necessarily elevated horror, whatever that means nowadays. right? But they're still doing something interesting. It's still artistic. And yes, it's still giving you some of those, you know, those cheap thrills that are still satisfying. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So over time, I've just become more of a horror fan. I think when I was younger, I was like, oh, I don't like that. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like how it makes me feel. And I talk to a lot of people and they feel very similar about mm-hmm. that. And I'm like, yeah, I remember those days.
1: <laughs> yeah. It wasn't so long ago for me as well. You know, I, I remember them pretty, pretty strongly as well. Yeah, So I'm curious if there's a favorite subgenre that you have and if that differs for more modern stuff versus going back into the canon and saying, oh, you know, I like how they used to do witches, but now I like <laughs> <laughs> now I like more supernatural stuff.
0: That's a good question. Um, I don't you know, it's funny because if you were asked me, like, which subgenres do I tend to avoid when it comes to horror like that's a much easier question right. for me it's like torture porn is like first on that list <laughs> right <laughs> that's you know i have a i like being scared i'm not as big a fan of watching prolonged human suffering at mm-hmm. least of the physical kind psychic sure. i'm all for it <laughs> physical that's where i i have to you know i got to draw the line somewhere but in terms of ones i you know i tend to like i don't know if it's a genre per se but I certainly gravitate toward horror movies that are more eerie, I would say, than they are scary, maybe. Sure. I like that tension. Yes, I like atmosphere. I like mood. Mm-hmm. And some films are able to do, you know, they can you can have like all these jump scares and still be moody and atmos atmospheric. But those are the films that I really tend to gravitate toward. I don't necessarily need (laughs) jump scares in my movie all the time. I think they have worth. I think they can also be super gimmicky. So it really depends. I mean, the film we're about to talk about has some jump scares in it, and, uh, and I love them. So there's definitely some value.
1: It's just another paint on the palette, you know? It's all about how it's deployed. Yeah, exactly. And you talk about enjoying atmospheric movies. Not only does this movie have it in spades, but it does have those jump scares like you mentioned as well. It's delivering on both fronts. The movie we're talking about today is, of course, Take Shelter, written and directed by Jeff Nichols. Interesting fact about Jeff is he graduated from University of North Carolina School of the Arts right behind David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, Jody Hill, Tim Orr, and Craig Zobel, with David Gordon Green producing Jeff's first uh, movie, Shotgun Stories, and he talked about how, like, they were all so funny he was like they were the class clowns like they were goofing around in class totally see that and i'm back there just like okay let me write my movies over here (laughs) it's
0: so funny like he's i've i've heard him in interviews because he's kind of one of my favorite working directors i wish we had more films from him at this point but he's still he's not old (laughs) he's still got time sure but he just doesn't have he hasn't made as many films as i would like i think at this point but he's very mild-mannered, but incredibly intelligent, if you've ever mm-hmm. heard any of his interviews or read any of his interviews. But yeah, I could imagine him, you know, maybe <laughs>
1: maybe retreating a little <laughs> bit into the background <laughs> with some of those other gentlemen that you mentioned. Definitely. And I did read some interviews, and there was uh, one quote that I wanted to mention just right off the bat that I found pretty pertinent to the strike that's happening right now. And he, this was about Take Shelter. He said, On Take Shelter, I got paid $6,000, which they didn't pay me until it was over. It's a weird business. It comes in waves. You get a job, and then you're good for six months. That's great. It used to be two weeks, so that time has expanded. I'm very sensitive to the stability I have. How much money do I have in the bank? How long can I make it stretch? It's weird getting paid in big chunks. It's dangerous, and you can see how people mess up. And that sensitivity to stability is a huge part of this movie. It's oh, yes. very easy to feel Jeff putting his worries into the character of Curtis, played by Michael Shannon in many collaborations between the two.
0: He has yet to not be in a in a Jeff Nichols movie.
1: <laughs> he was in the Hank the Cowdog series. Oh, yeah, listening course. to I've been <laughs> listening to it. I said, let me check this out. I'm honestly having fun with it. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. He did say, as far as the origin of the movie is concerned, that, quote, Take Shelter was the first time that it was like, Okay, got to write something that could get made. Let's do something. Let's do a genre. Let's do a genre. All right. Looks like a zombie movie. But okay, I don't want to do a zombie movie. But do you know what's awesome in zombie movies? When they're collecting supplies. That's the cool part to me. When they're in the Walmart at night and getting the gas cans and the chainsaws. I was like, okay, he's got a storm (laughs) shelter and he's collecting supplies for the end of the world. And then I remember telling my agent at the time... Yeah, it's going to be this kind of thriller movie about preparing for the end of the world. And he was like, oh, that sounds great. And I turn in this kind of meditative piece about marriage and commitment, you know?
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I guess that's what you call a bait and switch, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and he laughed and he said, I was moving from my 20s into my 30s. I had just gotten married and my first film had done all right. And I finally had something to lose. The anxiety grew out of that. Not to mention shit was going crazy. Bush was in the White House, the economy was collapsing, there were wars everywhere, towns were getting destroyed by storms. It was just like, what's going on? It felt like the world at large was losing its grasp of keeping everything together. That was just in the air. It still is. And yeah, I mean, he's absolutely right. And th- 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 this is an older quote, too. You know? Yeah. This is... From before the insanity that has taken hold of the world in, in even more gripping fashion. Yeah, indeed. I do also want to set this up with some discussion of the biblical allusions. Uh, there is a way of looking at this as a version of Noah and the Flood. Jeff said it's a particularly dark version if you want to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Noah where he doesn't bother warning anyone or collecting the animals. Right, right. In fact, in one of the deleted scenes, the counselor asks why he doesn't do that if he's so sure it's real. And he says, I'll protect my family, but the rest of the world has to take it up with someone else. And she asks mm. if that's God. And he says, whoever they want. This is <laughs> the rugged individualist, Noah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and where, you know, the voice of God is not necessarily clear. I mean, if it's close to anything, maybe it's close to, like, you know, those those dream visions in Darren Aronofsky's Noah, <laughs> which mm-hmm. which actually came after this. <laughs> right, so.
1: right. And there is a- another biblical story that it does seem to pull elements from, which is the story of Job. Mm. And this is less well-known than Noah, I believe, so I'll summarize. This is another in the God Prank series. Similar to tricking Abraham into almost sacrificing Isaac, then saying, just kidding. And so (laughs) in the story of Job, Satan visits God and God says, hey, dude, what do you think about this guy, Job? Pretty awesome how much faith he has, right? And so Satan says, well, it's very easy for Job to have faith and praise your name because he's bountiful as all get out. And God gets pissed at this and says, "Okay, fine, take it all away then, which they do dying children the family that doesn't hates him his crops wither he loses it all and some quote-unquote friends come to visit and job curses his life but not god and he says i didn't do shit and if god would just listen i could actually explain that i'm a good boy who loves him and he, he said do not declare me guilty but tell me what charges you have against me does it please you to oppress me to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked And the visitors ask, how can you know the plans of God? You must have sinned. And he gets pissed and says, you don't know a damn thing. And then God Mm. speaks to Job from out of a whirlwind. And he says, actually, I've been here and listening the whole time. And you don't know a damn thing. (laughs) And Job goes, wow, you're right. I don't know a damn thing. And so the moral of the story is God knows what he's doing, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: not man's place to know. Right. You know, that's the I and I am trying to think I, as you're talking about this I'm I'm trying to think about it in connection to to the film. I mean, obviously some of the the whirlwind I think <laughs> certainly comes to mind. Definitely. But one of the other things I remember from Job, those so-called friends that you're talking about, they like to try to persuade him that look, you know, God has done all these horrible things to you. Why don't you like curse his name? Like yeah. look at what he's done to you? What are you doing? And one of the reasons that God rewards him at the end is while he does question him, while he does try to explain things and realize that he doesn't actually know what he's talking about, he
1: doesn't ever curse God. He questions him, but never curses him. That's right. And uh, another big difference is that in Take Shelter, we don't see the epilogue where God lets Job live to 140 and gives him double wealth. He gets it back and then some. And in both, this test of faith isn't enacted simply despite their doing nothing to deserve it, but specifically because they do not deserve it, they are the ones tested. The ones who had everything, they're the ones who need to have it pulled away and, and be tested. The book of Job is what's called a theophany, the revelation of a deity to a mortal, and etymologically, apocalypse means revelation. And this is Job and Curtis's personal apocalypse something happening more and more in a post-9-11 cinematic world, these ensemble disaster films that we used to get got more and more boiled down into the perspective of one person. You get your 127 hours, you're into the wilds. Our fears get internalized into one set of shoes that we as an audience step into. And I think that it is a really interesting trend away from those ensemble movies.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so much of this movie that is feels like you're purely watching it from curtis's perspective and you know i think it's also telling that usually when we do see the storm it's not so much causing destruction as it is this harbinger for something else something Mm -hmm. more immediate uh within curtis's vicinity sometimes from people that he trusts or or feels like he he has trusted and that's another thing that uh, again another sort of wrinkle you know i i I was thinking about when i was thinking about like why i chose this movie for your podcast i like one of the first things i I chose this movie for a couple reasons one was because i figured there was maybe a lower chance of someone picking this (laughs) movie (laughs) because you know there's a debate i'm sure to be had of whether it truly qualifies as a horror movie or whether it's more of like a psychodrama family drama mm-hmm. there's moments that you could just mistake for what is you know a small independent grounded indie drama mm-hmm. even some bits of comedy but i was thinking about that but one of the other things that came to mind and one of the reasons why i chose it was the dream sequence slash hallucinations slash delusions <laughs> that we're seeing it's it's not always clear if he's actually asleep when he's having them yeah yeah and the, one of the first ones is of him watching this storm. It's not the it's not the opening scene where he sees the storm for the first time, but I guess it's the second one. He's in his backyard. He sees a storm gathering, massive cloud formations, looking like it could be a hurricane, it could be a tornado, it could be both. Yeah. And the whole time you hear his dog Red barking in the background, and we do get some shots of Red. But what ends up happening, and this is where I feel like this is what's so unsettling about it to me, is that we shift from all of a sudden the storm being the threat to all of a sudden the dog being the threat. The dog that the, the barking goes really like high pitched, almost like unnatural for a second, and then Red breaks from his leash and just attacks Curtis. And that attack, which is like this very, you know, in your face, uh, you know, extreme close up. Just chaos basically, mm-hmm. um, just all of a sudden becomes the focus of the scene and goes on a little longer than you expect it to, yeah. And I think that's this that's almost like setting up the rest of this movie in the sense that Curtis is looking outward, he's looking externally at what's going to, you know, be this destructive force within his life, and he's realizing this is one of the moments he realizes, oh. It's coming from inside the house. <laughs> mm, there you go. And it becomes this this theme that echoes. It's not just that he's facing these forces from without. He needs to look within and see that there's, oh, that's where the threat is. This thing that I thought was the harbinger, the, the dog barking, which would usually what you'd see is that would just be it. That would be the harbinger. The storm would be the focus and yeah. it would do something. And right. here the, the harbinger becomes the threat all of a sudden. Right. It's a great subversion. Yeah, and and he's doing that throughout many of the dream sequences in this film. It's part of the reason why I love this movie so much because it's always a little bit off. It's never doesn't quite doesn't quite move in the direction you expect when you see, you know, dreams in the movies. You know, we'll, we'll get into some of the later ones, but I did want to spotlight that one up front because I think it is setting a template for the rest of the movie. And and also, you know, is setting up the sort of unpredictability of of, you know, Curtis's dilemma that yeah. he's that he is beset on all sides here, even from the things that he should trust. And he's and it's established that he's had read for a long time. Right. All that's going on in that sequence. And, um, you know, I think it just, you know, builds up from there, to be honest.
1: Yeah, I love the dream sequences. I think that they are so great, not only in terms of being very interesting, just from. Uh, formally not having anything to indicate that they are dreams until suddenly <laughs> you're in a surreal moment and things are are all jacked up. Yeah. But like you said, even when you're like, oh, okay, I realize we're in the dream. Here's how I think it's going to go. It does sort of zig when you expect a zag. And that helps to build that surreality and make you feel off balance and bring that horror to you. And also, like you said, I think that You know, foundationally, even beyond the mental illness or the exhausting blue collar job or the daughter who's lost her hearing, there are tangible disasters that Curtis also has to reflect our fear of, like dog attacks, like a chlorine spill. Mm. In the same deleted scene, he says, it can happen. It can happen. There's an order to things. Nature has a balance. If this storm happens, it's because something's wrong. Yeah. The drilling work that he does also does fuel his disease. Medically speaking, the impact of an environment like that heightens the risk of anxiety and bipolar disorders, causes physical side effects. In fact, one of his first quote-unquote waking hallucinations, the ones where there's not really even uh, any chance of him having been asleep when it was happening, is during one of these drill sessions. They filmed for less than a million bucks in Grafton, Ohio. Where in the commentary, Jeff said they were "quote welcomed with open arms," more or less.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Diplomatic.
1: Yeah, really fun commentary to be honest. Mike, who goes by Mike, apparently uh, had a great dry sense <laughs> of humor uh, that I really enjoyed. Yeah i I totally believe that. Yeah, I was looking
0: up. I was curious because I I was always aware that it that they that it was meant to be in Ohio and specifically northern ohio which i believe has been referred to as tornado alley mm. although nowadays it seems like they're coming it's not just restricted to that to that sure. area but i believe it's meant to take place in lagrange i want to say which is which has had its fair share of tornadoes yeah and at least the i'm not i wasn't clear cuz according to imdb it looks like they said the house was shot in lagrange i don't know if that means it's the exterior I'm gonna assume the exterior as right. opposed to the interior I mean that would be wild that they're just like we're just gonna w- the <laughs> location of the film is where the interior is and that's it yeah so that seems less likely to me but yeah like they really did I-, I appreciate that about Nichols that he was you know willing to shoot it on location yeah definitely you know I don't know what kind of tax credits there
1: are in Ohio but I hope <laughs> they were good <laughs> It definitely shooting on location instead of having to worry about building the sets does help with budget, which was not high. Like I said, they shot for less than a million dollars of that budget. Jeff joked that we gave David Wingham two bucks to make a score and he did a great job making it sound big. I wanted a lot of strings and it works. It's definitely deployed in my opinion. I honestly think that the lack of being able to afford too much keeps it from being overbearing. I like that it is not so throughout the movie, you know. I I just recently watched Oppenheimer. I liked it a lot, but one of my big complaints is that the score is just happening all the time. And <laughs> I was just like, "Give me a break here, Nolan. Come on, my man." <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's relentless. <laughs> it is. It is.
0: <laughs> yeah. One of the it's one of the first things you hear in the movie and this it's this kind of like almost like this tinkling, like it's I don't think it's piano. I think it's maybe something electric, but it's mm-hmm. almost like rain patter. Yeah. And it recurs throughout the movie. And on its own, it's not especially threatening. But as you start associating it with certain images and the sort of decline of, of Curtis's mental well-being, um, it becomes much more sinister. And it starts to cue certain moments. You start to prepare for something bad to happen when you hear it. Um, and I just think that's really, that's a really interesting way of introducing something that seems innocuous, that just becomes more and more sinister as the film goes on. Um, it's again, very simple, very simple to begin with. And then there are more strings, as you mentioned, as the film goes on, especially in that the ending scene, which I hope we'll get into. Definitely. But, uh, yeah, I just love that as a starting place for the score.
1: Yeah, it's really great. The movie was well received, especially on the festival circuit. He quickly got the movie mud afterward. And then, yeah, like I said, most recent credit, writing and directing the Hank the Cowdog podcast starring Matthew McConaughey as Hank. Yeah. Um, it, wow. it was shocking to discover, but I was a big time Hank head as a lad. And yeah, mildly <laughs> amusing, I'll say. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean, it's been a while. So, you know, it. I, I've been trying to keep up with him. Just like, what is he doing? Like, and he's been on a bunch of projects. You know, he was uh, attached to uh, one of the A Quiet Place prequels, I believe. Which I think he was supposed to direct, and then he Mm. ended up leaving it. Good. But his last- You're better than that, (laughs) Jeff. (laughs) I know. I mean,
1: yeah. Uh,
0: (laughs) You know, he's one of those guys that, like, I just want him, like, I remember, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but- No, go for it. Film Spotting, which is one of my favorite film podcasts, they did this, they always do top fives. And one of their top fives was top five filmmakers that we wish we could fund to make whatever they want to make. And I think Nichols would be one of those guys (laughs) for me where I'm just like, just- just give him the money to do what he wants. That's what I want to see. Whatever it is. Yeah, and I hope it's right. different every time. So yeah, we haven't gotten a film from him. We do have, supposedly, we have The Bike Riders coming out this year. Oh, yeah? Which would be his next movie starring, I believe, Tom Hardy, Austin Butler, Jodie Comer. Damn! Yeah, pretty pretty incredible <laughs> cast. And I believe it's a motorcycle club, I want to say in the 60s. Uh, it's based on a book. Uh so I'm I'm really excited for that. That sounds more in line with <laughs> that sounds more something I would expect from Jeff Nichols than like yeah. A Quiet Place. Or I think he
1: was supposed to do an Alien Nation movie oh, at boy. some
0: point and
1: that I think just went out the window. <laughs> so Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that it's set in the 60s cuz that makes it easier to work around Austin Butler being stuck in Elvis's uh, <laughs> yeah,
0: mindset good point. there. Yeah. <laughs> so. Right.
1: So let's get into the actual movie. It does open in a dream, the first of many, and like I said, notable for their lack of indicator that it is a dream until the surreal stuff is happening, in this case, raining motor oil on him as a storm gathers. Yeah, that is
0: the one thing. I mean, that's not really knowing, like, obviously you've got, again, that cloud formation, which recurs a couple of times throughout the movie, which is so threatening just on its own. But then just seeing this very unnatural thing of this, like, like not even like a dark brown like this light brown color and that's something i keep wrestling with something i still don't quite know like how it fits in with everything but i like that it's there it's so unnatural Mm -hmm. it's something and the fact that it's described as motor oil that it's something artificial almost like maybe an implication that whatever this massive weather formation is that we have had a hand in making it that is now giving it back to us perhaps Those are all possible implications. You know, that gets set up and then there's that brilliant payoff in the ending when a certain other person uh, sees it and feels it for the first time. So it's just really just just talk about tactile filmmaking in that moment.
1: For sure. And I love this audio edit that they have here where it cuts to him in the shower, but the audio stays the same. Yes, yes. Yeah, there's no shift in it at all in the mix. And I love that that shift that totally throws you off balance. You're like what? You're watching this motor oil come down like what the fuck is happening? And then (laughs) suddenly you snap back into reality with him. Yeah, it's it's really jar. Like,
0: it's not quite like a match cut, but it's a similar idea of going from the rain to this like dinky little shower head that's coming. And it's I just love this idea. He's still getting rained on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. For sure, it's still and it's and the fact what, what you mentioned with the audio staying consistent, it shows that for him he's still in that moment to
1: some extent. So right, it lingers, it lingers. Uh, we meet his wife Samantha over breakfast, played with a plum by Jessica Chastain. Yes, uh, amazing in oh, this movie.
0: Gosh, so good. Uh, uh, you know, I h- went into this movie having seen her, uh, having seen her in like Zero Dark Thirty and other things. But this was kind of the year this was during this is 2011 that this film came out. And 2011 was the year of Jessica Chastain, you know, between this movie, Tree of Life, which is maybe my favorite movie, of the 2010s. There you go. It's definitely a, a big one for me. And then the one that she got a nomination for the help, which I would say maybe hasn't held up as well as the Tree <laughs> of Life or Take Shelter. Maybe not quite in that same echelon, but it was the sure. one that, you know, got her the nomination. So there's that. To be honest, like watching this movie, I'm like, how did she not get nominated for this? It is um, wild. It is a masterclass. And the fact that she is able to do this in a film that also has Michael Shannon giving maybe the best performance of his career, and still she's able to make an impression. This These are some serious actors, folks.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is the kind of thing where you're like, oh, having someone else great to play off of really helps them elevate their game, really helps them bring their best, because these are two of our generation's great actors, really just bring in the heat. And and it's it's remarkable to watch it happen in such a like quiet movie in a way.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it's also very it seems very intentional on Nichols's part to not just make this a role that's going to be the supportive wife who's there to, you know, support them no matter what or even to just be totally misunderstanding the whole time. There's right. real nuance and and um I would even say like character history that's being communicated through the two of them when she chooses to react, when she chooses to get angry at Curtis, when she chooses to let things go, when she kind of collapses and doesn't know what to do. Yeah. These are all baked into that character. That's just this level of detail and, and and also just, like, technical craftsmanship in terms of an actor to be able to make that seem like it's still part of the same consistent character. But I think that Nichols will do this really smart thing where instead of just staying with Curtis in moments between them, all of a sudden we'll, we'll be in, like, Samantha's perspective. Mm-hmm. like. hmm curtis will go off like there's that one scene which is i think was showcased in the in the trailer i remember i saw it a million times before other movies (laughs) where she's yelling about him like you know how could you you know you built this stupid tornado shelter and he at one point just says there's nothing to explain goes off but the camera stays with her and stays Mm -hmm. with her breaking and that's just like again i just think that's so smart on nichols's part to not make this seem like we're only within Curtis's perspective, and that's what we're limited by. We have the, this is a two hander. Yeah, if not literally, then it's then it certainly feels that way, and Chastain is making it feel that way.
1: Definitely, and also makes it feel like the family unit is a character as well. That this is yes. uh, it's its own entity. I also, I think you raised a great point about her sort of having a backbone in some of these moments that a lesser movie might just have her fall to the side on, and this comparison is not to denigrate either one of these movies, but I also watched Melancholia before, oh, before recording okay. this. A film I still need to see. <laughs> oh, mama, you gotta check this one out. It is also released in 2011, also depicts a world-ending apocalypse a lot of similarities between Kirsten Dunst and uh, Michael Shannon in those movies. But one thing that differs is their significant other in melancholia. Alexander Skarsgård, who does a great job with this is a excessively doting puppy eyed, nothing right. He, he has no backbone to him in this movie. And when you see how it, Contributes to Kirsten Dunst's downfall. And you compare that to Jessica Chastain being able to be actually supportive in a way that isn't just allowing Michael Shannon's character to run over her. I think that you can see how that might be beneficial to someone who is in a depressive state, who is having trouble to have someone that is actually there to lift them up instead of just mollycoddle them.
0: Yeah, it's a really again, it's just a very nuanced uh, portrait of a of a person of a marriage. Mm -hmm. You know, you get a sense throughout the their interactions of why they care about each other, like why they chose one another. There's just like some lovely little scenes between them and sometimes there are moments where it kind of helps break the tension a little bit like there's been a lot of tension between them. I'm thinking of the one scene when they're at their daughter Hannah's school right. And uh, Curtis has basically he's still in his work clothes. He has not had time to have a shower. Part of this has been his fault. And you can tell that that Sam Samantha is is very much stewing at him throughout this. And she makes a remark about the way he smells. And all of a sudden he just goes, I think I smell good. (laughs) And like, kind of like, you know, just with like some swagger. Yeah. And he actually even says it to some other parents, like, you think I smell good? And just creates this like, and that's such a lovely little scene because it does break the tension, as I mentioned. But I think it's also showing us something about how this marriage
1: works. How it works. And also why she is staying with him. We need we need yeah. these moments of levity because exactly. if it's just him spiraling, you go, "What are you doing here, girl? Get the fuck out." Right. You need to see the the connection. You need to see these moments of levity. It's it's vital.
0: Yeah. And it's but it's also a thing of, it makes you wonder like has something like this happened before and he's able to kind of turn it around with a little bit of charm. Mhm. And you know Michael Shannon Like if you were just look at the guy, I don't know if charming is the first word you would use, Mm -hmm. you know, but that's one of the things I love so much about him as an actor. He has such an undeniable presence that I think is on its face very unnerving. And to me, what's so interesting about him is the way he's able to subtly break through that to show us the charm, as I mentioned, the humor, the swagger. I think he's just capable of so much, and I think this this film just is a showcase for everything that he's capable of. It's such a plum role for him.
1: Absolutely. I also, here's something about Jessica Chastain that I want to get your thoughts on, that they mentioned in the commentary, and I found insane. <laughs> which, so they go, okay, she's a vegan, and she cooked them chili dogs for lunch every day, which- Fine, I know plenty of vegans who are willing to just like cook meat for other people who are still meat eaters, but chili dogs every day, that is too many chili
0: dogs. Yeah, I mean, one would even be enough, (laughs) I think, maybe even too much. Uh, So thats It was wild. Wild for me to hear that. Yeah, never would have guessed that in a million years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm coming down on the side of that's too many chili dogs. Sorry to anyone out there who feels otherwise, but... That's that's the facts. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. She is a seamstress. Samantha is, uh, played by Jessica Chastain, to help pay the bills since they are strapped for cash, especially with expenses like a vacation coming up. Uh, He won't hear about it, though. Just write the check, baby, he tells her. Of course, this very stoic, traditional masculinity where you're never allowed to show any cracks or anything. Interestingly, the shot of him staring up at the storm in the first scene and the shot of him walking out into the day here were the same day. And so you can really see how effective the cloud CGI was.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because I, I don't even think, you know, today I I get, I brace when I hear that something has a lot of CGI, but when it becomes like the principal, sort of architecture behind what's driving especially the action scenes in a ton of movies and here I'm like I'm watching it I was like well I know a lot of this was created through CGI but again it feels like it feels earned Mm -hmm. it feels like it's always communicating something about Curtis about his situation and it looks really good you know it's it's for the budget that they had, I have to say this is it's very impressive. And I would say even downright intimidating at times. And this is me <laughs> speaking as someone where extreme weather is certainly one of my fears. And Nichols really tapped into it here.
1: They did a great job. It is a, a shockingly effects heavy movie. He did point it out as well. And uh, yeah, it looks great. You'd never know it. He has to work mining sand. There are so many shots of nature seeming ominous, especially when juxtaposed with their literal attack on the earth with a drill. Yeah. And then doubly in conjunction with the trash heap of rusting metal on their property. Like (laughs) all of these disgusting man-made unnatural things, much like watching the orcas take down yachts these days. You're like, yeah, no shit. nature's fighting back.
0: Yeah, I love that. And that first sort of we're vaguely aware of that trash heap. But until Hannah, again, the daughter starts playing with one of these boards that, to be honest, doesn't look like super like it's like the nails kind of like it's not sticking out pointed ends like it's (laughs) it looks pretty innocent, you know. But it Look, is- if it was your kid, you'd be like, hey, don't play with that nail board. Po- oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I perfectly understand. I just I just like that it's, again, seemingly innocuous, mm-hmm. you know, compared mm-hmm. with what we're going to see later-, later on. Oh, for sure. You're just going to basically move that junk underground,
1: basically, at a certain point. <laughs> so. Curtis's friend and co-worker, Dewart, wants to cut out early because of the storm coming, which Curtis denies, which is a funny little role reversal there. Yeah, yeah. Curtis drives him home after happy hour and Dewart pays him his highest compliment. He looks at his life and he says, That guy is doing something right. I said,
0: Oh, Dewey.
1: And it's, <laughs> you know, again, that's one
0: of those moments where it's like when someone like Curtis hears that, that's almost like a death knell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the worst <laughs> thing you could hear. Again, the irony being that Dewart means it incredibly sincerely. Yeah. And one of the real, you know, I think I, I I, was vaguely aware of it the first time. The second time, I was much more attuned to just how heartbreaking the disillusion of their friendship is over the course of this movie.
1: Yeah. Shea Wiggum. Amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's, you know, he's been he's one of those that guys that I love seeing pretty much in everything you know the two of them would have a really interesting rapport in the series boardwalk empire so it's really fun to see them in this thinking about that yeah thinking about their very different characters i would say but still (laughs) you know still just a very easy chemistry between those two actors definitely yeah and just again just how that the the arc of that and how understandable duart's just like like it's not just he's hurt by it but also there's just sense of it not making any sense to him. And mm-hmm. what we know and like what Curtis chooses to reveal, we understand why DeWart doesn't make, you know, can't make sense of it at all. Because yeah. Curtis is not communicating any of this. And that's also part of the heartbreak is you feel like these people would be able to understand each other if they just knew the truth. And Curtis, for multiple reasons,
1: cannot reveal it. Can't do it. Uh, you know, you mentioned that DeWart means this very, very complimentarily of course and one thing i thought that is kind of interesting is that if you put yourself in curtis's shoes that hearing that someone is like looking at his life and coveting it that like Mm. in in his paranoid state might come off threatening almost
0: yeah yeah you know it doesn't hurt or or sorry it doesn't help rather (laughs) when later on (laughs) <laughs> when he can, when Dewar can tell that something is wrong with Curtis, where he says, you know, I just don't want you to fuck it up. Again, meaning it sincerely, mm-hmm. but also to Curtis, seeming threatening. Right. Which will, again, and he won't just hear that from Dewar. There will be other characters who will say things
1: that he will take to me in a certain way that maybe is not the intention. Yeah, absolutely. That weekend, Curtis begins cleaning the trash heap when it starts to storm. The dog, Red, goes nuts, the storm becomes a tornado, and Red breaks loose and attacks Curtis. And this is the dream sequence you were talking about, of course. Yeah. Uh, He wakes up, clutching at his arm. It lingers as he worriedly watches his daughter play with Red in the morning. Uh, I did find it was very, very funny that he'll dream about cleaning the trash heap, but not actually do it. (laughs) Yes. I also love in that scene where he takes Red outside,
0: he mentions like one of the reasons why he's doing that is because he doesn't want the daughter. He wants the daughter to not be playing the dog and to eat her breakfast. Mm. What does Curtis not do in that scene? Eat his breakfast. Wow.
1: Wow. <laughs> Great point. Great point. So the most important meal, Kurt. Come on, you know, dog.
0: It's, uh, Yeah. And it's, even that's kind of, again, that's even heartbreaking. We, again, we just through like a little bit of dialogue. We, we learned that Curtis has had the dog for a while. If I'm remembering correctly, or at least the implication seems to be he's had him before they've had Hannah. Right. And that seems like it was his dog. Like he might've right. had it before they were married, maybe even before he met Samantha. Yeah. He's it seems Red like he brought while. it to the relationship. Yeah. yeah. Cause, and they continually refer to him as his dog, not mm-hmm. their dog. Which I think yeah. is very, and also is giving you a clue of like, there must be something really wrong because he's willing to give up Red at a certain point, despite having known him maybe the longest of the three
1: members of their family. Exactly. And this gloom is noticeable to his wife, even before he snaps at her and does storm out the door. I love, he does the like most cursory glance at his watch. <laughs> he's like, oh, <laughs> yes. I'm late. It's like, dude, you didn't even look at that. He is rattled, he's testing his arm all morning at work, he even takes some time from their already tight schedule after the rain to buy a doghouse. You start thinking like, oh, it must have felt so real for it to be affecting his behavior this way, almost more like a premonition, some might say. Yeah, and again, it's that also, maybe not strict rule, but
0: usually when you think of dreams, you don't think of being hurt within a dream, like, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you'll experience something. Right. Right. And here it's like, it seems like in the dream, it's painful. And then we get the evidence later on when he's woken up that this is still bothering him. There's a nice like just close up of him, like clutching his arm at one point. It just again, it's that that same kind of tactility and is again meant to unnerve you because all of a sudden that thing that was in that dream is lingering. It's with you. You can feel it.
1: As far as he's concerned, it's real. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it is. It is as real as it needs to be to him. Yeah. He's also distracted by this crazy pattern and the way the birds are flying. Meanwhile, Dewar is like, let's get this damn hole drilled. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is the first waking yeah. vision. And notably, Dewar doesn't confirm it because he is so intent on uh, on drilling there. Yeah. And I just have to
0: say, there was a lot more tension. We don't get a ton of scenes of them on the job, but those scenes, there was a lot more tension in those scenes than I remembered of whether they're going to be able to do the drilling successfully, whether the bit's going to break, whether they're yeah. gonna be able to, you know, uh, the, the limited time that they have in that land, whether they're going to be able to get the job done. There's all this stuff going on, and that's just percolating underneath <laughs> all of this. That would be there whether Curtis had any kind of mental issues, whether he had any insecurities, whether he had any issues with his own mis- masculinity or his family. Like, yeah. that's all there already. And it's one of the things, again, that I love so much about this is it's not – an issue movie it's a convergence of all these things in our lives and how they affect us
1: yeah the bedrock of just generalized work anxiety yeah (laughs) this is then when we get the scene of asl class and and that very cute moment together where they're goofing and they are good together this then cuts to curtis driving his daughter home in the pouring rain he notices a woman in the road swerves to avoid her and crashes smashing his face Uh, The car is then surrounded by older people who break in and steal his daughter, strangling him, and he awakes, literally suffocating from that terror. There is sort of a continual theme of not seeing things until it's too late, and failure to act, that seems important. And in fact, that fear of failure to act seems to be what's driving Curtis here. And I think that this is a really indicative one of it, where you, you see it start affecting not just him but also his daughter. This was the worst day of the shoot according to Mike and Jeff especially because Tova the little girl was genuinely scared that she was going to have to get pulled out of this window. Oh, oh my. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> Understandable. That sounds yeah. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um and I know that she the actress is uh de- is deaf in real life. Right. So they were, you know, key to get that sort of authenticity. This dream sequence, this is one that I kept thinking about. It was maybe the first one that I thought of when I, you know, was thinking about that as an aspect of this movie. You know, you mentioned Cinema Joes before. We did an episode where we talked about scariest movie moments. And for me, it was specifically the moment in this dream, the waking up part of it. Because again, this feels like, what do we usually see in cinematic dreams? Maybe even the way we experience them. You're in the dream. Something bad is happening, and then you wake up. That's right. it. And that's the relief. And what do we get here? We get we get this really interesting editing between the scene in the dream and him attempting to wake up. Which almost makes it feel like those two worlds, again, are converging. Like mm-hmm. we can't trust that he's not gonna suddenly, you know, go from waking. To being back in the dream where this horrible thing is happening to him. And then right. again, him sort of waking up choking with that just amazing, how he makes that sound, which just seems so guttural, like so primal. Mm-hmm. Just like, again, it's it's so unnerving. It makes you feel like you can't trust that whatever he's experiencing in these dreams is not going to intrude into his real life. And that's exactly what how he chooses to, you know the choices he he makes from this point onward are very much with that thinking yeah and it's just it's a it's purely visual i love that we can't really see the like we see like bits and pieces of them of the figures that are grabbing him and i did want to bring something up because i i did look into symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia which is brought up directly in the movie there's a family history. His mother specifically had it. She is, like, living in assisted living. She is <laughs> heavily medicated. Right. So there is there's undeniably a family history of this thing. It is a factor. I, I say factor. I don't want to say that it's the central driving force behind what's happening to Curtis. But it is a, part, a, a big part of it. But I did think it was really interesting. I was reading this on the National Institutes of Health. That one of the the hallucinations that people who have paranoid schizophrenia might experience is a predominance of denatured people, parts of bodies, unidentifiable things, and superimposed things. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was ri- that was not expecting that necessarily. Yeah, no, definitely not. And that is a key in, in a lot of his dreams. It doesn't not always the case, but especially early on. When we see these threatening figures, we're seeing bits and pieces of them. We can't quite identify them. We think maybe, you know, oh, is that is the guy in front of Curtis's house in A, a Later Dream is that Dewart? Is that somebody else? We can't really get a good enough look at him. But right. it is very true what he's doing visually is certainly playing there's certainly you're certainly seeing a lot of those those things that I just mentioned. Yeah,
1: manifesting. Playing out cinematically. Right. He looks and feels like shit as his wife heads out the door to a farmer's market with her wares to sell. And uh, she's worried about him, but he waves it off. Better already, he says, with the world's most pained expression on his face. (laughs) Guinness screeched to a halt. (laughs) Get him in the book. Yeah, man. This farmer's market scene is as mortifying for me as anything else in the movie. A lady haggling down Samantha on a hand-stitched pillow from 15 to, quote, 8, and it's in change. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and this was a scene I totally
0: forgot about before I rewatched it. And I was I was thinking about it, I'm like, this, this is not here, you know, on accident. This is here mm-hmm. for a reason. It's not, Curtis has no involvement within it. And I, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts on it. My sort of, you know, preliminary thoughts are that we're seeing a little bit of how Samantha negotiates this is maybe a little bit of a microcosm of that the fact that it does go down to you know it goes down further than she I mean it's only a dollar more than (laughs) than the the lady first uh, first proposed but that she still like kind of gets the last word. Mm -hmm. which is interesting like there's a bit like well hannah likes to count change so you're lucky about like she doesn't quite say that it's it's much more it's a little more diplomatic than that yeah but it's but certainly with a bit it's not friendly no (laughs)
1: it's it's and she's pissed i mean and and who wouldn't be i mean i think part of it is that there's so little empathy for on the woman's part that like she put so much work into this stitching it's all hand stitched she says and fifteen dollars is the most reasonable price in the world. <laughs> and this lady comes up and she 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 says half half of what you are you want to sell it to me for, and it's gonna be in change. So it's gonna be a fucking hassle to deal with as well yeah and and they are in such dire straits, and she knows it. I think that you know you you yeah. talk about looking at things on the horizon and and sort of seeing these things coming and I think that even though we don't see it as directly from her perspective, I think that she is looking out and seeing like, oh, like the economy is fucked and I need to be selling these. I can't afford to be just going like, uh, cutting off my nose to spite my face, right? Eight, eight, eight birds in the hand are worth two in the bush. That doesn't really work. I guess it would have to be 16 (laughs) in the bush. (laughs) But it is
0: interesting in that scene that she's, she says it's 15, like, then we hear seven. Yeah. And there's this little bit of finality where she says, Well, okay. Watches the woman start to leave. You think maybe that's how this, you know, that's just that's that's the end of that interaction. And then what does she mm-hmm. do? Then she says ten, which is a bit of a come down from what she originally said. Yeah. And I I and then there's a bit of negotiation from there. But I think you can kind of see this in the marriage later yeah. on there's a moment where she leaves and it's again, it's that kind of question of like, what is the, this seems pretty, that's a pretty extreme step. There's not a lot of mm-hmm. conversation when it happens. She does end up coming back, but what does she come back with? With terms. <laughs> that's so I think, yeah, I don't know if it maps one to one necessarily, but I think we're learning a bit about her and what she's willing to give up. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned how like, just like, the craftsmanship behind the pillow that it probably is worth $15. You know, I imagine she's put a lot of work into this marriage. I can't imagine that Curtis was the easiest person, you know, to, to deal with all the time, but she does have, there is a rhythm to their, you know, there's, there's rules, there's that kind of thing. And I think we're learning a little bit about what she's willing to sacrifice, what she's willing to give up, but also where she's willing to draw the line. Mm -hmm. And I think that's – again, it's – it's when you watch it the first time, you're like, this is an interesting scene. And then as you start to see, again, more of the interaction the marriage, you start to see a little
1: bit more of how this reflects her character. Definitely. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, The woman she haggles with, they said, we found her from our local casting in Ohio. Her headshot had a parrot in it, and she showed up to set with a cigar. (laughs) This –
0: the the randomness of some of these, I, I mean, how you find these, like, you know, much praise <laughs> to you, sir. <laughs> Chili dogs, the parrot, man.
1: Those commentaries, man, they're a, a gold mine. Yeah, seriously. No time to rest for Curtis. He needs to get busy ignoring the trash pile by building a doghouse based on his irrational nightmare. Another very funny line from the commentary here was when Mike was like, it's hard to act like it's a dog you've had for your whole life. When it's actually Kenny, who speaks German.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He also called Kenny a tough customer. I could see that. Yeah. I don't know if it came up in the commentary, but I heard that the scene, the, the dream that we mentioned with the dog was apparently Nichols said in terms of directing, it was one of his least favorite scenes but they fixed it in post. <laughs> there you go. And uh, yeah,
1: did a good job. <laughs> yeah. They, they, uh, they talked mostly about how Mike was like, that dog wanted to attack me. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> the, the behind though, behind the trash pile ignored still, like I said, is a below ground shelter that Curtis takes a little look around uh, shelter and not much more in there. Simply a bench in a concrete room, the doors to nowhere, Mike called the shelter doors in the commentary, which I thought was an interesting turn of phrase. Wow. Yeah,
0: yeah. makes me think of the uh, the Winchester house or something like that. Right, <laughs>
1: right. The shelter was, in fact, the only set that they built. They shot everything in it in one day, the last day. And and Jeff said they saw the sunrise when they went in and when they left. <laughs> 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 and that the loopiness, quote, I don't know, I think it helped.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh, I could see that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this becomes like such a, such a focus. It becomes something concrete and identifiable for Curtis. I think it's really key. And I really keyed in on just how much it becomes something that he can do physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something that ha- again, it's literally grounded. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's underground. Actually, it's removed mm-hmm. from everything. Right. And it's something that he can do. It's, it's preoccupying. It's all these things, everything he needs in this little, you know, <laughs> well, you know, maybe, uh, I mean, I just think it's funny. Anytime he brings it up, I think the response, the first response is, What the hell do you want to do that for? <laughs> Which is just, yeah. that just is a really funny, uh, refrain to me. But, but it, it makes sense. It's, it's this focus. You feel like it's, you know, it's a reflection of his mind. I would say it's, it's this sort of dank, place that no one really goes that only that he feels secure in. Yeah. To a fault, <laughs> you yeah. would say. But yeah, I just I love it as this visual. I don't think it gets too heavy-handed. I think it's mm-hmm. just right in terms of, you know, a visual reflection of his mind.
1: Definitely. I also think that there is a little bit of regression happening for him that he is feeling safe down there, not not in like a claustrophobic kind of tightness in that space but like a swaddling like mm. like nothing can get him down there and and for him to feel that comfort that he isn't getting in the world because the world is so terrifying and full of threats both material and otherwise yeah yeah it's it's a safe spot for him for sure That night, he and Samantha fight about Red the dog being put out back. He doesn't actually open up, though. He just says, he's my dog. I want him out there. He even sort of puts the blame on Hannah. And his wife is like, she's his biggest fan. Yeah. (laughs) They're watching the news. It's reporting on a chlorine spill nearby that killed a man's family while leaving him behind despite enduring 11 hours of exposure to the gas cloud. In a very weird moment of irony, the guy who delivered the propane tank that you see towards the end of the movie died in an accident transporting chlorine while they were filming. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's crazy. Wow. Yeah, I don't want to think about <laughs> the implications of that. <laughs> just regular transport, not involved with the film. Gotcha, no. gotcha.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's I think, just what you brought up is that, you know, you, you brought up early this idea, it can happen. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, yeah. which again, informs the whole gas mask thing later on. But I love that it's this, like, very particular thing. Like, it's not necessarily related to the storm shelter as being like a shelter from like tornadoes, for example, but it's still informing. Like, I, I just, again, it's, it's how all these things, like this really like, like this miasma or this really like ungainly collage or something. Yeah. It's he's preparing in the way that's very particular to him based on the things that he personally experiences.
1: Mm hmm. I also, you know, this cuts to another dream sequence. Hannah now imperiled by someone attempting to intrude on their house, which is interrupted by a moment of anti-gravity. It is an amazing scene. It is very fun, very shocking. As you sort of mentioned earlier, every time that you're like, oh, it's another vision, they still manage to surprise you in it. They still shock you. And the effects in this are really good for a low-budget movie, thanks to the very reduced price that the effects house hydraulics gave them based on enjoying shotgun stories. Nice. And they said that this shot, this was the most work that they had to do on a single shot since their work on Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it is it is one of the like most
0: overtly surreal moments. Again, mm-hmm. it's that, you know, again... External threat, all of a sudden, internal threat, maybe like this weird thing happening with the furniture, just all of a sudden. And I also love that it crashes down too at the end of it. And it it goes from feeling very surreal to all of a sudden, very real,
1: like just imagining all that damage. (laughs) Yeah, I also love how he resists it, you know, that that this seems to be an unstoppable force. And here he is still on the floor.
0: Yeah. And it's, again, it's not communicated. Like, it's all visual. You kind of have to figure it out. I think the first time I saw it, I was like, what is he attempting to do? Like, I, but it makes this dreamlike sense. And mm-hmm. maybe we haven't, you know, maybe we haven't had an exact dream like this. But I, at least for me, there's something identifiable about if I just do this one thing, that will somehow absolve me from what's going on in right. this in this you know in this weird dream space yeah it just again it's which makes it very identifiable again more dreamlike but yeah it is it is him resisting and man talk about some great face acting yeah and and also just i love that hannah's face is turned away in this dream so much which kind of is you know where she's almost like not a person anymore she's like this thing that he is protective of Yeah. I just think that's really pointed and does put more focus on him and that amazing face. So, (laughs) you know, that's the the other advantage there.
1: Yeah, his face acting is really top notch. I also pretty recently watched Bug, the William Friedkin movie. Yes. Oh, yes, I know it well. Goodness gracious, he is a powerful, powerful force in that movie.
0: Yeah, and he he originated that role. I have tangent about Bug, (laughs) but uh, he originated that role on stage. In the Tracy Let's Play, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I had seen this movie because in college I actually was in a production of Bug. Oh, wow. I did not play Peter Evans, the that Michael Shannon played. I played Dr. Sweet, who's the... doctor whose profession is never really specified he could be a psychiatrist he could be a medical you know uh, a physician he a handler
1: he could be a handler he could be a robot like there's, you know they never i like like when it turns into a robot suddenly (laughs) 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 they're like yeah he's a robot i was like i'm on board
0: (laughs) but i remember when i saw this movie not having seen the play and to be honest it was really my first michael shannon experience wow and the thing that so impressed me about what he was able to do and maybe I think carries over to the mo- the movie that we're talking about now is there's this – there was something that was very unsettling about him. There was something clearly wrong. He felt – it felt like he had gone through something really traumatic. Right. And at the same time, there was still this level of trust. And you're like, I understand why Agnes, the female lead in that, who I believe was played by Ashley Judd in the film. Right. Right you understand why she would trust him right a vulnerability. I can say that's not an easy thing to pull off. I'm not gonna name the actor <laughs> in the production I was in. <laughs> Hopefully he's not listening to this. I'd be shocked if he was, but I will say I felt like that actor we got he did the intensity stuff really well like yeah. that was that was unimpeachable in my opinion. I don't know if we ever felt like we could trust him though that's a balance mm. that I think Michael Shannon is able to pull off and again. He's a professional, like, I'm not, you know, this is a college production, but it is, it's just an
1: indicator of what makes Michael Shannon so good, that he can pull off that balance. Yeah, I was gonna say, that's why they pay Michael Shannon the big bucks, but then he's in these indie movies where he doesn't get (laughs) shit, so. Yeah. (laughs) That's why he gets those Zod rolls, so. Uh, Yeah,
0: the less said about his most recent Zod (laughs) role, the better.
1: Uh, <laughs> oh, I haven't even seen it. I haven't seen a DC movie in a in a while. Well, this
0: is a smart choice, my friend.
1: Yeah, I feel like I feel <laughs> like I'm just treating myself okay these days. You know, <laughs> it's like you don't need to see it, George. And um, turns out I was right. <laughs> There's another suffocation as Curtis wakes up. He's even yeah. peed the bed, and yeah. he's so embarrassed that he he yells at his wife to stop. As yeah. she approaches him in worry after asking for the doctor's number, yeah, pushing her away. Verbally, with his hands gesturing, you know, as we'll find out, he was raised by his father. You mentioned that his mother is in assisted living. And having just that masculine energy in this sort of rural community, it's, I don't want to excuse the behavior, but just saying that, like, it's easy to understand how Curtis might wind up with some of these hangups about being the strong man who can't allow other people to help him. And you see here how it's affecting his life negatively.
0: Yeah, it is this sinister undercurrent, I think, in this movie that is never really like explicitly spelled out, but is seems to be informing not just for Curtis, but really any of the male characters in this. I think we see it, especially with Dewart and the way that he chooses to confront Curtis about the way that he's been treating him. Right. Like there's it's always there, but I like that it's not it's not harped on you kind of have to you kind of have to feel it out you kind of have to like take the hints that the film is giving you about that we don't learn a lot about the father yeah curtis was pretty young i believe he was 10 when his mother was committed and it doesn't seem like he or his brother really saw the mother very much after that Mm -hmm. there's even the way that curtis chooses to address the fact that he may have a mental illness there's the stigma just every the shame in his voice whenever he right. has to talk about it I mean that's all again that's all informing all informing this definitely you know you even see a little bit maybe we'll get to the scene later on the scene with his older brother which I think is a really key scene in the film oh yeah totally forgot that Ray McKinnon played his older brother
1: and so this. great I love that guy I mean yeah. Deadwood is one of my faves it's so so great
0: which i am currently i'm in the middle of like season one i'm watching it for oh, the wow. first time and i oh, wow. also didn't know ray mckinnon was in it and talk about a memorable
1: character <laughs> oh yeah he's so great in that. he's i mean he he does that kind of yeah. like old timey guy so great i love uh in oh brother where art thou he's the like yes. guy who marries george Clooney's his wife yeah oh it's he's so good
0: yep oh. <laughs> What a what an actor! And what an actor! Fantastic in Mud too. I think that's. I feel like that was the one performance I wish got talked about more in that mm-hmm. in that movie. I mean, so many great ones, but that's right. one where I'm like, that's. I think that was maybe one of the first things I saw him in, and so it was, I was like, oh, he has this like goof, this goofier side to him too and other things. So yeah. it's been really yeah, I really like him as a character actor. He's also a, a writer and director, I believe too. He does it all. I think he did the show Rectify which I need to catch up with one of these days.
1: There you go. Curtis has Hannah that day while his wife is at church. He takes her to the library and he checks out a book on mental illness. Big ups for the resources at the library, but Jeff said the book cover was designed to communicate that he wasn't going to get any answers from it. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see that.
0: It's, uh, yeah. It looks pretty technical. It doesn't look like the kind of thing that uh, that maybe he needs.
1: It's also old, right? It's like yeah. this like art deco kind of <laughs> like, uh, these just <laughs> nebulous objects on it that are like, oh, this yeah. is like a 60s vibe and if he's getting that kind of old uh, information about a uh, mental illness, you know, it might not be as dependable. They go to the grocery store as well. he stocks up on food for the shelter. Meanwhile, he's late for his lunch with the in-laws and they're waiting on him again. And I yeah. find it so interesting that his fear of not providing for his family is causing him to be undependable.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Another sort of recurring irony throughout throughout the movie. Jeff also did confirm that they got product placement money from Campbell's, which made me laugh. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs>
0: um... There was some, I feel like was there something else in that scene like another label because I remember seeing something like oh I wonder if that was some product placement there
1: yeah it must have been especially yeah. there's uh, when he's like stocking it on the shelf in the in the shelter and you just see Campbell's pork and beans <laughs> you're like all right <laughs> the father-in-law needles Curtis about not being at church clearly a worn-out debate by the reaction that Samantha has yeah. He gets to work cleaning, though, and stocking the shelter. Still out there at 11 p.m. as his wife heads to bed. Amazing shot of the light emanating from in there. Oh, my gosh. Especially yes. when it's revealed that he's reading the book in private down there. Yeah, that's
0: like that's like the light from Marcellus Wallace's suitcase in Pulp Fiction. Like, that's the level of, like, ethereality to it. Yeah, <laughs> it does not seem free. like a
1: natural light. Mm-hmm. Asleep at the doctor's waiting room, the doctor gives him the most banal advice. Curtis reluctantly reveals the depth of his nightmares and the psychosomatic manifestations, so they give him a mild sedative prescription and a recommendation to see his shrink friend in Columbus. Meanwhile, his wife is attempting to navigate the Byzantine insurance system to get a cochlear implant for their (laughs) daughter. And the reaction, understandable reaction, that she has – Uh, of relief just to have the name of a specialist that will actually get approved by the insurance company you know the way that they've been giving her the runaround who has not had a moment where you have been like what is the point of this insurance that is so clearly attempting to not pay for this yeah
0: oh gosh and that's such a great little scene because i think it's again setting up this expectation or it's it's certainly At least it's it's creating the sense of like, okay this is going to be something that's going to be important that's going to happen later on. But you're also getting the sense like, hmm, if they're bringing this up now, maybe there's something that's going to go wrong because just how hard they had to fight to get it. Yeah. And I just I, I really like that aspect of it. I think the actress who plays the person who's getting them the, you know, getting them that specialist, I think she's really good. Like, you just Mm -hmm. very briefly get this, like, little history of her character, and that she's probably had these kinds of conversations all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And it just, you know, but I love that Samantha's reactions to, like, that there's actually, like, physical touch involved with it. Like, it makes it seem that much more, like, this person, this person doing their job has actually had a material impact on the people that she's meant to, you know, on her clients, on the people that she's meant to serve. Again, just a great little moment. They just, the little, you know, something the Coen brothers do so well, I think Nichols does as well. Just the actors who play the tiniest roles are so well chosen.
1: Yeah. And you see it again in the follow-up scene that I think is one of the best scenes, in my opinion. I It is one of the more understated scenes. But he goes to the pharmacy to pick up these sedatives and the tech tells him that they're almost $50. And he says, okay, what's the copay? And she says, that is the copay. And it's so representative of the pressures of expenses adding up, of insurance not covering as much as you'd like or being hard to navigate. It's brutal. And he literally empties his wallet to do this. and. Taking care of yourself is so expensive. Buying good food is thousand times more expensive than buying junk. And oftentimes, if you're in a food desert, you might not even have the option of buying healthier food. It is awful the way that we have set things up in a way that makes it so difficult for people to live a life that isn't being – brought down by these by these things that don't need to right? that 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 uh, things that are meant to help you live a long and fulfilling life actually are tearing you apart from the inside
0: and i you know there's even a remark made at one point that apparently the company that curtis works for has good insurance and we're seeing we're seeing this like if this is good insurance what is you know what about any other company that's in this area like i don't even want to know what they do or don't cover
1: Right, right. And it's, it's still six months out, even the surgery, yeah. uh, even though it, it, they finally get this approved. It, it's crazy. Yeah. And what makes it so so special, though, is that he comes home to a big hug from his wife and everything seems okay again. Yeah. You see what makes it worth it to him, what he's fighting for. Hannah is excited. The dream of a waterfront vacation seems back on the table. Yep. He takes the pills, and he looks in the mirror contentedly. He's sure everything's going to be fine now. And this moment of hope is so tragic. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah. So sure enough, he wakes up peacefully. He feels better in the morning. And as he heads to work, it starts to come back. He starts asking Duart about survival in the hatch. The storm starts to gather again in his mind. An auditory hallucination of thunder sounds a lot like gunshots. And so he has this panic attack and runs off. He's puking. He wheezes while driving to a place that shall, that sells shipping containers ultimately. And he decides that this is when he's going to go visit his mother in assisted living. Things have finally become or uh, reached the tipping point. And as you say, she is in a daze. She does seem very drugged up. She is shocked to see him. This actress, you know, you mentioned a lot of the smaller roles having great actors. Kathy was this woman's name. She's great. She adds a lot. Apparently, as written, she was pretty with it and even like offers Curtis a Dr Pepper because it's Jeff's favorite drink. And in, in the way that they have it instead where Curtis has to be like uh okay, I'm getting myself a water. Do you want like do you need anything? Like yeah. so great, so impactful, tell, so telling.
0: Yeah, and it's, I, I did want to mention, do you, so Kathy Baker is the actress here, and she's a pretty, pro, I mean, I guess she's mostly known as a character actress. She's popped up in a lot of things. She's notable, probably Edward Scissorhands is a is a good, you know, that's that's probably one of her better known roles. Pretty memorable, mm-hmm. I would say, mm-hmm. in that movie. And I just, I love that, the fact that they got her for one day. Because, yeah. again, there's so much, we do get some. We get a little bit of history through the dialogue here, but we're also learning so much about what that family history must have been like. Yeah. And I love the way that Nichols shoots it. Again, very unexpected. There's a moment when she opens the door where all of a sudden the camera is, like, kind of removed, but it's, it's actually not from Curtis's perspective. It's more from her perspective. At one point, mm-hmm. it's actually over her shoulder. So it's not quite, like, POV, but it's pretty close to it. And that's when Curtis is offering the water. And that's putting you in her headspace. Yeah. Which again is unnerving because this seems like it's very much a subjective experience of Curtis. This whole film has been. And then Nichols moves to another character. Right. And he's he's which is to me is very empathetic. And it's and it's different than how Curtis has been experiencing his own paranoia. But it yeah. is this moment. It's meant to be unnerving. And I also just like their sit-down conversation. There's a moment, it's not an extreme close-up, but as she's describing the symptoms that she was experiencing, sort of when things started to get bad before this episode, where she would go on to abandon her son in this parking lot, as we learn later, it's this moment where she just all of a sudden leans forward and talks about how people were. She, there were people who were watching her and listening to her, and the intensity in her voice. And it's a, it's not a long, you know, it's 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 pretty brief, uh, in terms of like, I guess it's part of a monologue, but it's very pointed. And it's not too long after that that we do cut to a two shot of, of the two, or not a two shot of we cut to a shot of the two of them in the frame.
1: Yeah, okay. and then shortly thereafter that has freaked him out so bad that he cuts it off and bails. (laughs) He he says, that's too much. The the honesty, the, the sincerity with which you're revealing yourself here. I can't handle that. I can't do it.
0: Yeah. And it's just, there's this little moment. There's a couple of moments where characters, it's not that the camera is doing anything. It's that through the blocking, a character will lean forward in the frame all of a sudden and just appear much larger than the other character. And this mm-hmm. is not quite that cuz it's she is the only person in the frame in this case but it is this moment of oh what is happening this is this is all of a sudden we're getting like it's like she's peeked beyond the veil of the medication and is delivering this like warning yeah to him. She's it's back. just it's so it's very subtle but it's just the perfect right note in terms of blocking in that scene
1: I also really love that I've sort of alluded to the grass is always greener aspect of the way that people are looking at each other's lives and in jealousy and and seeing things that they want. Oh, that guy's doing it right. And here, I think that there is an interesting parallel to her being sort of uh, safe and sound, removed from society in a way that uh, is protective, and his desire to carve out this shelter, to look for a space like that, that he can feel bubbled and and like he doesn't have to worry about people watching him and 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 all that sort of stuff on the way home though he has to stop for gas and watching the charge tick up calls to ask the doctor for a more local psychiatrist recommendation mm-hmm. uh, like i said very expensive to take care of yourself so he decides he will simply settle for less kind of darkly funny that this then cuts to his seven thousand dollar plan to get a shipping container uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> leveraging a predatory loan with a variable rate that even the banker is like hey this deal sucks dude (laughs) yeah that's how you that's when you know it's real bad (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. he might not think people are spying on him necessarily like his mom yet but he's definitely letting paranoia run things
0: yeah and it's it's i think that the fact that we do get that that harsh cut uh i think is really an interesting thing because you think Like, oh, he's maybe doesn't want to see the thing, the psychiatrist in Columbus, because he knows how expensive it's going to be to even get there is going to be an ordeal, probably. Yeah. And then you start to see like, well, maybe that's not the only thing informing it if he's willing to plunk down (laughs) this amount of change. Yeah. And again, it's this, you know, it's always making us realize that it's never just one thing. There's never just one issue that a character is dealing with. It's all these things working in
1: conjunction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, he asks for Dewar's help building out the shelter. Oh, we'll just have to borrow a backhoe and a hauler from work is all he says. And Dewart is like, uh, I guess I'll help before asking if Curtis is okay. Never better. <laughs> Curtis, though, goes to see the counselor. He gets right down to business. Uh, of the behavior markers for schizophrenia, I have had two delusions and hallucinations, he says. This is, of course, a demonstration of how deluded he is yeah, that he doesn't include disorganized behavior, <laughs> considering yeah. his constant lateness and scattered thoughts.
0: Yes, and the negative behavior, I think, is that the is mm-hmm. that
1: the term for I it? I think that's right. I Which
0: that's is right. basically like not reacting in moments. Like we've already seen evidence of that. That'll only mm-hmm. become more clear <laughs> as we as we go on. Yeah. So it it is hilarious. When I was watching it the first time, I was like, oh, maybe he has a point. And then I was watching it the second mm-hmm. time, I was like. Oh, no, he's he's just not in tune he with was, what's been happening to him. Exactly. He can't even see it. But I just, I love the fact that he feels the need, like, okay, I'm defining mm-hmm. it. This is how it is on the questionnaire. Like, he brings it up before the counselor basically says anything. You know, we learn later she just kind of wants to talk about what's happening. Yeah. But I just love this idea of, like, I need, if I define this, that will mean that I have some control That at least give me the illusion that I have some control over it, which basically is a, is a metaphor for Curtis's
1: life at this point. <laughs> sure, absolutely. And he does talk to her about the diagnosis, since it's all he can do, uh, his mother's diagnosis specifically. And he's, he tells this story about how she left him in the car at the grocery store one day and never came back. They found her a week later eating trash out of a dumpster in Kentucky, and has been in assisted living ever since. My dad raised me, he died last April. Like I said, lot to unpack here. Not only with the pure masculine energy that explains why he's got a tough time opening up, but also that recent death of yeah. the lone parent raising him since he was ten is an awful trauma that might have shaken some of this disturbance loose.
0: Yeah, um, and I again, I don't think the film like underlines it too much. You know, whether it was that his father was like someone who was very overbearing, and he's trying to figure out how to okay what do I take from that? What do I, you know, avoid? I know that's a, I'm sure that's something that new parents have to face all the time, no matter how good their parents might have been. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's that, there's a sense of not having that sort of support structure anymore, regardless of what his feelings might have been there. It's no longer there, feeling Mm -hmm. unmoored, and feeling like you truly are on your own. I think these are all Yeah, the recency of the death. Again, another thing that I only picked up on this second time. Not an accident. I think there's a lot of questions that 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 opens up.
1: Definitely. More thunder and lightning as he drives home. He pulls off to the side of the highway and watches it crackle across the sky. Is anyone seeing this, he asks, but his wife is asleep in the back of the car, and they discussed on the commentary that if it's a waking vision or if it's real, doesn't really matter. The important part is, that he's not willing to wake them up to see. Yeah. Yeah. And every, I mean, we do hear
0: like cars whizzing by in the background. It seems like the rest of the world is just kind of going on its merry way. And he's Mm -hmm. feeling like he's the only one there, but you're right. I forgot that there were other people in the car and we see them asleep. It's very clear they're there, but yeah, yeah, he doesn't wake them up.
1: Yeah. And then it's a great edit as they cut to him opening up this garage and he's working on expanding the shelter after seeing that. Such a funny look, too. When his wife comes home and he climbs out of the hole to see her. <laughs> Got great expressions. Yes. They also discuss that by juxtaposing the farmer's market with his stuff. They show her efforts to bring in money are literally going into a pit. <laughs> I also uh, love Dewart's reaction in that. Like, he's the first <laughs> person to
0: see Samantha and Hannah. And it's clear he doesn't know. It. Like, he's, he's gauged. Like, we can tell, this is how good an actor Shay Wickham is, we can tell that he's gauging the awkwardness of the situation, <laughs> and what the story is between the two of them, recognizing, mm-hmm. oh, she doesn't know about this, he's never yes. told her, this is about to get real awkward, but it's so, it's so understated, I just imagine, which is, you know, some another thing that I love so much about Nichols' characters is that there is this understatement, but there's still a clarity in the emotion, Mm-hmm. Um, And I just think
1: that's a great reflection of that. Yeah, he's got classic little brother face on. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Not a word. Don't you think you might respect me enough to consider what I had to say? And he says he didn't want her to worry about it. Well, she's worried, Curtis. Especially when he reveals the loan. You know the expenses we have coming up, and you want to waste it on a stupid tornado shelter. And on the one hand, you might say, is it really a waste to be prepared? But on the other hand... The shelter was already in existence. Mm. There's – as far as I'm concerned, they could get down there and be fine in a short-term emergency, right? Yeah. But his whole thing is this 11 hours that they have to (laughs) be down there or maybe even longer. They have days and days' worth of food down there. And the fact that the shelter already existed and that his thing is building it out. I think is really important and something that I didn't see touched on that much because if he was reacting rationally and healthily, he might be like, oh, great. I have a storm shelter. This should take some of the weight of fear off of my mind. Yep. And instead he goes, oh, I'm, this is now another expense that I need to have building it out to make sure that I can live in comfort here with my family. It's just really interesting. Yeah. And I also just love this
0: continued refrain throughout the film of, you know, you got multiple characters, whether it's his older brother, whether it's Stuart talking about how he needs, they need to make, he needs to make sure that he's providing for his family. Mm-hmm. This sort of like vague at there's not ever a sense of how he should do that. Like there's no like roadmap necessarily. It's almost like these vague platitudes mm-hmm. about how a, a man should provide for his family and the problem is when you don't have something that's concrete, well defined, it becomes this abstraction. It becomes yeah. up to anyone's interpretation how you're able to do that. Um, for Curtis, you know, I'm sure he uses this maybe as partially as an excuse, maybe as maybe it's, it's, par- it's genuine of building this thing, which he will be able to provide for his and and it's something that he is seeing that no one else is seeing. Right, um, but of course, the irony being, by doing this, he is like da- he is totally endangering the financial future and and livelihood of his family in the process by doing this right. thing that is ostensibly to protect them. So it becomes this like vicious cycle, endangering them and alienating them. Yeah, yeah, but but feeling like he needs to take on that burden. I'm like, right, yeah. I didn't want you worrying about it. That's the whole like it's it's removing yourself again this also ties into one of the symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia is is self isolation and i think that's that's very clear there yeah. i also love in the scene which you know where she confronts him about that loan that you've got this where he says um there's there's nothing to explain like she's asking oh. him to explain <laughs> it could not be more clear what she wants from him and his response is, there's nothing to explain. Again, this dead affect on his face, more of those negative <laughs> symptoms that, that I mentioned before. But it's also like, it, and this is an interesting thing, because I've heard some people, I've heard some criticism about this scene in particular of critics saying, well, why does she continue to challenge him there? And it's something I'm, I'm I don't know if I have an exact answer on that, but I think a part of it is that She's realizing, maybe for the first time, that there's a part of Curtis that might not be open to rational discussion. Like mm-hmm. she knows, we know at this point, she knows about his family history. She right. knows about what might be, what this might be, or at least partially be. Mm-hmm. And I want because that's a scene where she really breaks, um, yeah, and he makes she starts a, weeping. You know, vague excuse to go. You know, tuck Hannah in. <laughs> she starts weeping and it's, you know, I was watching and I'm like, they don't tell you how she's feeling. She doesn't say how she's feeling, but it almost feels like this is a moment of her really feeling like for the first time, I may not be able to reach this person that I love. Yeah. And contemplating that. And I think that's why I really like, I I like the way the film plays out because she does try to challenge him before that moment. Mm-hmm. But I think this is her realization that, like, Oh, there might be this other thing with my husband that I cannot reach through my, you know, just by being empathetic, by being open, by by trying to create a safe place for this person. Yeah. This, that might be immaterial because I'm dealing with this irrational thing, this, this condition that my husband might have. Yeah. And that's another aspect of this. And it's also a level of, you know, subverting our expectations. It's not just, she's real, she's mature enough to know. When she can and can't fight a battle. Or at least, you know, that's her perception.
1: Sure. And he also, I mean, he does walk away. So there's only so much challenging him that she can do. Yeah. And he goes to the town on the sedatives. He takes a handful of definitely not Tic Tacs. <laughs> Jeff was like, I was hoping no one would look closely. That's uh. wow. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, now I, that's all I can think about. <laughs> I do admit, I've been here before. One time in high school, I was like, if 2-Benadryl is helping my allergies a little bit, surely 4-Benadryl will clear it right up. (sighs) Oh, no. It did do that, but also it meant I was extremely high in math class that day. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But it did work. Don't endorse it, but it did work. That's all I'll say. (laughs) Uh, He has a seizure at night. In the commentary, he did say, this is his homage to Bug.
0: Oh, fascinating. He's
1: even bleeding- yeah, he 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 was very pleased on that performance. Bleeding from the mouth, so Samantha calls an ambulance, he grabs the phone, says, Belay that order, blood trailing from his mouth, <laughs> curls up in fetal mode. The EMTs come anyway, and he refuses help once again. He sends them out. And this is where he comes clean to Samantha at the table in the nighttime. He says, It's hard to explain because it's not just a dream, it's a feeling. Something is coming, something's not right. Yeah. And how amazing is Chastain in
0: this scene? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I honestly, it was like hard for me to watch at times because the, the fear she's feeling like this, he could die here. The direness mm-hmm. in her voice as she's trying to communicate to the 911 dispatcher. It's so and it, I love that it comes after this moment of where they've really like there's been the schism between the two of them. Mm-hmm. But just seeing this, seeing that love that's there. But it's also this really scary moment. Yeah, it's just it's just incredibly acted definitely. once again.
1: Uh, yeah, as always, right? They get the news that they have to wait six weeks for the surgery, and on top of that, Curtis is distracted at work because he had a dream about Dewart attacking him with a pickaxe. And you're like, what the hell, man? That's your buddy. He helped you make your damn shelter. <laughs> but he's out. The dream is all it took, just like the dog. He goes to the boss. He asks for him to be reassigned. The boss reluctantly agrees, but is also like, First, you're missing a lot of work, and now you're acting weird on top of that. You better watch yeah. yourself, counselor.
0: And But even there's – that's an interesting interaction relationship there because you can mm-hmm. tell that there's there's something that goes beyond work between the two of them. Like in terms yeah. of how they feel about each other as people. Mm -hmm. and I again another thing I totally forgot I forgot that Robert Longstreet played his boss another character actor that I love and uh, I think maybe one of the reasons I forgot is because there's usually some facial hair accompanied (laughs) (laughs) with that gentleman and yeah and uh but I just again it's that sense of history between the two of them maybe we'll get into this a little bit later but the scene where he confronts him about having Mm -hmm. effectively stolen <laughs> bits of from from work and and created an immense amount of liability that curtis did not even you know attempt to comprehend before doing it yeah i think that's where you, you really see that this is breaking his heart and i love that he brings up like hey you're you're missing this stuff it's more like it's less a scolding than it is like hey i have your best interest at heart i just want you to know about this mm-hmm. i just again it's just this little it's this little grace note it's this little thing it's not just the fact that he's the supervisor i think you could easily see another movie just making it like his boss you know doesn't really understand it like no there's a real sense of some if not necessarily that they're close that there's some sort of understanding
1: that goes beyond just the job Mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm Samantha's friend, slash Dewart's wife, tries to fish for info about Curtis's behavior. Meanwhile, he's out buying gas masks, so things are going great. Yeah. And so at Samantha's request, Curtis's brother Kyle does come by to ask what's going on. He's shocked by the expense going into this. Don't put nothing on credit cards, he says. That shit will eat you up. You take your eye off the ball for one second in this economy? Shoot. Curtis ain't hearing it, though. He refuses his help. Except for the most crucial help to ask him to take red away. Yeah. Brutal. And this I also this awkward like hug and then the firm <laughs> handshake where they're like no, that's right. We are masculine men and we shake yeah. hands here. <laughs> yeah,
0: just just more I think
1: incredible storytelling happening
0: in this scene. I like that once uh, Kyle, I believe his older brother's name is, who's again played by Ray McKinnon, right? You know, makes his presence known. The way that that Michael Shannon reacts, the, that Curtis reacts in that moment, you see him kind of like steady himself. And part of you's like, well, he could be reacting that way because he knows that somebody is like going to give him a talking to. It could be anybody, but there's something about the fact that this is the first time we've seen that reaction for this character. Yeah. And you just get this sense of shared history between them. We know that there's an age difference between them because we know that Curtis was 10 when Kyle was a senior in high school. Yeah. So there's a little so that's which is, you know, it's not a crazy age difference, but it's enough where they've definitely experienced different things and probably their their understanding of what happened with their mother is going to be very different based on the age they were at the time that it happened.
1: Doesn't he say something about like teaching him, like kicking his ass again or yes, something? Yes, which like, I think is really interesting. He
0: brings it up only when he feels like he's being challenged for being there, for right. being found out, yeah, almost. And which you know is that is that saying something? Was you know is it possible that that his older brother bullied him when he was younger? I think there's definitely a, a, a heavy you know implication there, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Again, not really spelled out, but I just. I love the different ebbs and flows in that mm-hmm. scene between the two of them where it's clear that his brother does genuinely care about him. Again, this sense of genuine caring in a film that is about someone who is feeling like he's moving beyond or or can't trust the people in his life, the yeah. fact that we still see that people seem to really care about him is is very key. Mhm. And when that hug comes between <laughs> between the two of them, it's initiated by Curtis. which I think is really interesting. Very interesting. He hasn't like completely, he's not just succumbed to this, this rigid version of a man, which is clearly in his mind and is something he's at least partially aspiring to, but it's not, it's not gone completely. The way he indicates it though, is very sort of, I don't want to say half hearted, but it's not entirely clear what he wants. Like it's almost like trying to, a little childish too. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that well, regression again yes very much so which and you know we see that a couple of times the way he's the way he will hold his body in a way yeah. where it's clear that he's uncomfortable and that's definitely one of those scenes but yeah. again just just a great and i love the fact that he brings up the mom does he bring up the mom to try to you know maybe get some leverage in this case of making him feel guilty even right. so you know bring the girls too which is like that's going to be an interesting interaction if that ever were to happen mm-hmm. um and it's clear that Kyle maybe has had even less interaction with the mother
1: right. than Kyle. More bitter has. as a 17-year-old yeah, when it happens I think so. than a 10-year-old.
0: You know, I think he says something like, yeah, I'll get around to it as he looks at the ground. doesn't you It know, doesn't say that very convincingly at all. Mm-hmm. So just, yeah, just very different parts of, you know, just very different moments in their life, I think, when this happened. But also just, you know, even outside of that, like what kind of relationship they had. There probably was this... I I don't get the sense that this relationship was like super close. Right. That maybe there was some
1: hard edges to it. And if he's 17, you know, he's about to be off on his own, right? He's yeah. about to be leaving the nest. And when when a when a big event happens like that, it's easy to see him being like I'm just going to put the family behind me, right? I'm right. going to leave and get out of here. So There's another nightmare. This time it's Samantha attacking him with a knife, or rather the lead up to it. And we get this great bit of editing as it cuts to him at the breakfast table, staring at her back oddly, then Mm -hmm. flinching so much as to be comical when she touches (laughs) his hand and (laughs) asks if he's okay. Oh,
0: man. The first time I saw that dream sequence, especially not knowing, like, you know, not having any warning for it necessarily, it really did freak me out because I did genuinely did not know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little easier to watch it the second time, knowing <laughs> that nothing really <laughs> happens in it per se. At least, not right. like violent. But there's always the threat of it. I love that it happens. I, I was my memory of it was that they had that he had that interaction with his brother, and then it cut right to the dream. But actually, there's a little interstitial scene of him just like helping his daughter. Like I think she like drying her after she's been in the bath. Yeah. And then we get this. We get this room. He walks out into the hall. There's an incredibly, like, agonizingly slow tracking shot through this hallway that we've seen a million times. We know it's not that long. Yeah. And yet it feels like an eternity for him to walk down it. We see it from his perspective. The camera pans to that room that we saw, which, of course, we know one of the reasons he's doing that, because the last time he saw it in a dream, weird stuff happened there. Before that, I should mention before that, as he's going to how we see that his wife is in the kitchen we do see here we see samantha there her back is entirely to him he can't see any aspect of her the camera pans to that room pans back all of a sudden
1: she's staring right at him we don't see the turn and she's soaked it's yes. she looks like uh there's again that sort of internal external thing where it seems like she's outside but it's it's in the house it's it's in the relationship, right? It's, it's yeah. his significant other, his other half, so to speak. And it's this moment where he's turned away for a
0: second and she's mm-hmm. completely done, like literally done a 180. Turned on him. Yeah exactly and the fact that there's a knife there i could think of like oh is this is this how he's seeing it? like she Uh-oh. stabbed him in the back she's the one who called kyle like there's wow. all that sort of implication there too wow great point yeah and i love the, the little touch of the flies buzzing around the knife mm-hmm. that's that's really creepy the deliberate slowness of her turning toward it that we keep cutting back to michael shannon and it's like this very weird angle where it's like kind of looking up at him. Mm-hmm. And he, his expression, which also makes it so much more disturbing. He's not really reacting in the way that we probably are <laughs> in the moment. Right. He seems not unmoved, but not really expressing a whole lot.
1: When she right, turns toward like, the
0: knife. He sees it coming. Yes. But he can't really do anything. He does. It he again. does shake his head, but he feels locked in place. Mm-hmm. That's a really just man. Talk about again. I know this is a horror podcast. That is a scene that's unnerving. Even if you ex- if you know what to expect, sure. the, the, the craftsmanship there, the choreography, the blocking, the acting,
1: it's just all in that scene. Definitely, definitely. It turns out Curtis's boss, Jim, does come by to see the project. Uh, when Curtis asked for Dewey to be replaced, he said, fuck that guy. And he snitched on him about the borrowed equipment. Yeah. So now Curtis is fired. Uh, two weeks benefits, but the surgery was six weeks out. And he may have built a shelter, but it's also functioning as a roost for chickens, which have come home to roost. Yeah. You see. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To Curtis's credit, though, he does immediately come clean to Samantha, which I was not expecting the first time I watched this movie.
0: And yeah, which is there is progress being made there. That's another Mm -hmm. again, another thing about this movie. It's not just the same like another film could do this and be really redundant. And it feels like incrementally she's reaching him a
1: little bit. It's not as much as she would like, (laughs) but it's, it's there. It is exactly. Um, she does slap the shit out of him here though. And storm out with Hannah, which is brutal. Yeah. And it's this, it's, it's this
0: one static shot. Like I love, he walks into there. She's at the sink. Doesn't yet know, probably feels like something bad has happened when he says what's happened. It's like a matter of course, there's not this moment of her reacting like, Oh my gosh, it's everything that's been building to this moment. And it's just this one unbroken take from Nichols. It's it's shocking. I love the way Michael Shannon holds himself after he's been slapped. Not only is there no reciprocation on his part, it's like he's shut down. He almost looks yeah. like a
1: scarecrow or something. <laughs> like he's become completely inert in that moment. Absolutely. And things are already in upheaval. And then he goes and there's a new counselor there, not the same woman he's been talking to. And this guy wants to start at the beginning let's yeah. go back yeah curtis walks right the fuck out and who could blame him who could blame him yeah i mean it's you know I- i'm watching and i'm
0: like is this really how it would go down but also within like curtis's addled mind it feels you know considering how much he misses it wouldn't have surprised mm-hmm. me if he somehow missed this he missed phone calls about this Um, it, it makes sense within
1: the context of everything we've seen. You have to imagine it's an underfunded clinic because he's already going there because it's the cheap option. Yeah. And this woman, she goes to school, right? She goes to a program. And so she's moving on to bigger and better things while he feels mired here and stuck in his situation. Yeah. That's a good point. I think
0: that's, that's, that's another thing that's informing this scene, that we just get through the way that he reacts. I love that it's it's actually pretty slow and deliberate. Like he actually like looks around a little bit before he leaves. He doesn't just like you know bolt for the door necessarily. Right. But he's like
1: maybe I'll do this, and then the guy is like, "Well, let's start over." And he goes, "Yeah, I come. I don't know. I don't think <laughs> so." <laughs> he's back at construction on the shelter, undeterred. Samantha goes out to talk with him, and he talks about how he's scared she'll leave him. Fun fact. This is the first time Jeff ever used two cameras during one take. And then he decided, I don't like this. (laughs) (laughs) He said, you get two okay angles instead of one great one. So there you go. Interesting. Yeah. He says that he can handle that she was in his dream. So Samantha lays out a plan of how to make things work. She's going to take that beach trip money and his last check to make things work for two months. They're both going to try and get new jobs. They're going to see how much it is to extend coverage of the insurance to the end of the year, to try and get Hannah's surgery moved up, and send him to the psychiatrist in Columbus. And you see the ripples, how one one thing falling out of this house of cards, the tenuous structure that he's built here, is enough to send it all tumbling.
0: Yeah, yeah, and forcing all these changes. But I, you know, the fact that she does come there with terms, as I mentioned before, the mm-hmm. fact she does have a plan – You know, it's certainly a credit to her. And, but at the same time, it's not a cure all. It's not the solution. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not the film's climax. It's not, you know, it's, it's a plan, but it's just that a plan. It's not been put into action yet. There's still, it could
1: still be challenged and will be. (laughs) Yeah. She also, one of her demands is that she needs a little normalcy. So she asks him to come with her to the Lions Club supper that's coming up. And Dewar is there, and he stares him down. He's not the only one staring, I should say. But Dewar does come over, and he confronts him. What are you doing here? Curtis doesn't want to do it there in front of everybody. But the Dew Man forces the issue with a shove and then a punch. And Curtis takes him down and goes on a rant. He says, you think I'm crazy? There's a storm coming, and not a one of you is prepared for it. And to emphasize his point, he throws some coleslaw at a pregnant (laughs) lady. Oh my gosh, yeah. I know that,
0: uh I think Nichols talked about how that was like one of the most cathartic scenes to write because it felt like everything had just been building to that and it, they needed a release for Kurt. Mm-hmm. He'd been holding it back for so long and this was exactly what he did. I love the way that Shannon plays it or once Stuart starts the physical altercation, he doesn't actually fight back. He's even like, even like the second time that he's like shoved them across the table, he's yeah. kind of like... You know, he's kind of like laughing about it. Well, I mean, he kicks his knee out. <laughs> well, that's, well, right. That So it takes another hit for him, yeah. like, him to actually go down, and that's when he does lash out. Mm-hmm. But there's, yeah. like, I'm surprised how long it takes for him to really, you know, do that. He's really committed to trying to put on a brave face, at least yeah. for this moment. Definitely. And it's another heartbreaking thing is that this is the way that Dewar thinks that he can, how he can... The only way to reach him is through violence. You know, yeah. that's that's really heartbreaking. And it definitely is. But we also feel for him because we know that basically this guy has turned not knowing anything about, you know, his condition, not knowing what he's going through. He's just turned into a completely different person. That's dramatic.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. He sold him out to the boss. He's fighting him here in front of everybody. It's easy mm-hmm. to see that he feels betrayed, but he is also going way over the yeah. top in the retaliation Both things
0: can yeah. be true they're not mutually yeah. exclusive and uh right. and it's an amazing this is you know sort of shannon's Lear moments in the film and it's fitting that it's about a storm even if the storm is not happening as as he's doing it yeah and it is it feels like a real commitment to me of i see everything you don't none mm-hmm. of you not a one of you even the way that it like that line script that's not None of you. It's not a one of you. The way he draws that out, mm-hmm. it's really putting this emphasis on like, okay, now I'm committing to me. I know what's real. I know what's dangerous. I've been right this whole time.
1: Right. Definitely. It also feels like him trying to get through to them because they're a religious community. He's trying to speak in this sort of authoritative, yeah. biblical tone. Good point, yeah. In real life, the extras had no idea this was going to happen. Eat some fish, be in a movie, go home, they told them. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that's very funny. (laughs) Samantha is scared for him, though, as he starts to cry there in the middle of the room. They hug and walk out while everyone is scared and silent. You know they're still talking about that one for decades. (laughs) Remember when Curtis flipped out in the middle of the Lions Club? I do want to read this quote from Jeff. It is a little bit on the longer side, so I apologize for that. But it is speaking to that catharsis that you were talking about, where he said, That was pretty effortless, from a writing standpoint, at least. The whole movie was building to it. You want this guy to blow off some steam. Luckily, it happens. It's interesting how it came together in the edit, because that was all about the daughter watching her father when I wrote it. That's how I felt. Curtis doesn't know it, but that moment at the end where he turns, stops, and looks at his family for the first time, he feels regret and all these things for blowing up in front of his wife and kid. That was just a real tangible moment I could keep in my mind, and it wasn't hard to write. It was fun to write. Well, I don't know about fun, but it was satisfying to write. Then you're on set with Michael Shannon, and it's extremely satisfying to see him execute it. We just kind of sat back and watched him go. In the editing room, the discovery was what his wife, Samantha, was doing. We tried a couple of edits where you would cut to his wife watching him, and it never quite had the impact of when you saved her for the end of the scene. You don't know what she's doing or feeling until the end, and then you kind of just want the camera to stay on Mike anyway in this scene. Then you get the shot revealing what she's been doing this whole scene, and you get the moment of support. Yeah, that's even more shocking than his losing it here. At this point, you are expecting that to happen, and the look on her face and what she's been through already—you're expecting her to walk out again. But the fact that I mean, she does support him is so crucial. Is it is heartrending. To watch her go through this and still be willing to put her whole self into the relationship.
0: Yeah. And it's, I would say, a little bit of foreshadowing for the ending as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, again, subverting our expectations. There's this sense of, okay, I think we get the sense that not necessarily that she approves of this, but she's still going to support this man. Right. She loves him. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, again, just a great way of subverting expectations, but so true to the character too. It just feels, it feels natural, even as it's unexpected.
1: Yeah. Another dream that night, he and Hannah are trapped between the storm and a crazy flock of birds who fly past him then start dropping from the sky as a siren starts to wail. The siren is real, it turns out though, and Samantha wakes him up and they get Hannah and run to the shelter. And this... Y- the vindication that he must feel in this oh moment my gosh. and the fact that it's her waking
0: him up <laughs> mm-hmm. right like that's so great like it's like oh this person has seen that there is this thing and they're warning me about it
1: <laughs> yeah and i also i was wondering if that was partially because of the sedatives if these band-aid effects that he's trying to do mm-hmm. are sort of preventing him from uh, reacting to the to the real the real threat is finally here and because he's taking those sedatives he can't react to it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Again, another another irony that's not harped upon but is yeah. ever, you know, nonetheless present.
1: Yeah. He is calm and measured. He puts the oxygen on Hannah while comforting her. Another big comparison point to Melancholia is that she it's very much about like how the depressed person, because they expect the worst all the time, can handle these moments of intense trauma more effectively because they were already prepared for it in a way. And you see that compared to Kirsten Dunst's sister in it, who had it all put together and she's very prim and proper and she is freaking out in the moments leading up to the apocalypse. Hmm. And so here, he is very calm. Now that the storm is finally here- He knows what to do. He puts the mask on her. He calms her down. It's very cute when Hannah repeats the sign for it's okay to her mom. Yeah. Really loved that little touch. And they fall asleep. But Curtis is woken by the sound of the storm still. He checks the lock to comfort himself now. And the next morning, after some trepidatious mask removal, Samantha says, you need to open the door now. Hmm. He's scared it's not over, despite Hannah and Samantha trying very hard to comfort him. And there's this great shot of him holding the lantern in front of them and there's the concrete opening there. And it really feels like Dante's Inferno, right? It feels <laughs> like that he's being led out of hell. And I love the empathy here, the approaching him with kindness in the, in this moment. It a thousand times yep. over you would be like it would be so easy to be frustrated with him and to be angry and to approach him with that kindness when he is in this in this agonizing state, right, is crucial and, and a, a big part of why the character is so important. Yeah. He does say he can't do it. He offers her the key. And 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 it, this is where it really comes to a head. He sa- she says, I love you, Curtis, but if I open that door, nothing is going to change. And this is what it means to stay with us. Yeah, that's the ultimatum.
0: This is kind of like where we're seeing the ultimate Climax of this relationship and where where this relationship is is possibly going to go but there's so much going on in it you know just even the wearing of the gas mask is a bit of a you know it's a it's a concession and it's maybe of like well maybe he had a point like you know if this is happening it's 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 present in your mind even if it's outlandish and i wonder if that's informing their decision to initially wear the gas masks but there's also you know you mentioned the kindness i think that's absolutely there but there's still that firmness mm-hmm. i think that's there's again yeah. there's this she's there's this bit of a balancing act that she's having to to make in that moment the other thing that i felt more this time watching it was for a for a little bit you're wondering like what if this man has gone completely nuts and is never going to let them out. There seems to be that possibility hanging in the air for a longer time than than any of us feel comfortable with. And you wonder yeah. if that's- Before going- he
1: hands her the key. He just says, yeah. I can't. And you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like, what are they going to have to do? Is he going to give it up without a fight? Like, there's all these questions that are lingering- and you're wondering if that's why she's approaching in the way that she is because she knows that that will lead to their eventual getting out of here. <laughs> their, sure. You know, their lives. Yeah. But then when he offers it and she still is adamant about him opening it, then you realize, well, okay, now it's about this is what's going to be good for him, but also mm-hmm. it's what I require. It's what yeah. I need. It's not about survival of their lives as much as it's about the survival of their relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And – I just, I mean, but even the fact that he's willing to give it shows us that he has some understanding that he's not, that, you know, that he's aware of his delusion to some extent, but that it has to be somebody else. And it's that level of that pride, that sort of, you know, maybe that undercurrent of of (laughs) toxic masculinity that's throughout this whole thing that's informing that decision of why he himself can't do it. There's a great moment before he opens that lock where his face is lit in this really sort of eerie glow and he looks back at them for a bit and this is where you see those trademark those bug eyes that I love so much from Michael Shannon and it looks like honestly I'm like it's like he's Nosferatu for a second or something like he's <laughs> just transformed into this incredible like you're like who is this person but that's the moment right before he opens it up and I just I love that 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 contrast that which you would think would not make any sense and yet it makes complete sense here because he is both of those things. He is a scary, right. imposing figure. He's also this lonely child. He is all he's all these things. And I just think that he gets
1: to to show it all in this scene. Absolutely. I love the shot of him pushing it open into the blinding light and yeah. really, you know, this kind of ethereal heaven feeling light, right? It feels like the light at the end of the tunnel more than it does feel like just getting outside, but the warmth of the sun is there, the calm after the storm. There's some branches knocked over and chairs overturned. And while it felt like it was the Great Flood, the Noah Flood, at the, at the moment, it was all okay. It was fine. And they would have been fine with the original, <laughs> worth yeah, <noting>. Right. <laughs> but most importantly, he accepts that it's fine.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I, I
0: for, again, just you forget about, like, the aftermath. It doesn't seem like, this was my perception anyway, that doesn't seem like there was, like, Really, any major damage? Like, Right. Who, maybe this was more of like a tornado watch than it was like an actual touchdown, but it was, yeah. you
1: know, sort of better safe than sorry sort of situation. Mm-hmm, which is, an, again, an undercurrent of the whole thing, this better yeah. safe than sorry kind of thing. Right. This is also where you see that propane tank that I mentioned. Ah, okay. They go to see the actual psychiatrist who says Curtis needs inpatient treatment, which yeah. greatly disturbs him on account of the whole never leaving my family thing. But ultimately, that is leaving them in order to return. So he nods. This was the second scene that they shot, which they said was really challenging to jump that far mm. into the character. Have to really play with those emotions, understand who he was that that early. Um, the gas mask purchase was day one. Oh, wow. So there you go.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All these things you don't think about when you're watching something like, yeah, what order <laughs> did they shoot this in?
1: <laughs> there you go. Now you know, this is the deep cuts, baby. <laughs> <laughs> They do still take the trip to Myrtle Beach, doctor's orders to get a break from, from the shelter, and Curtis builds a sick sandcastle with Hannah, very Noah again for a power to establish civilization, then dump water on it. And Hannah looks out over the ocean, and she makes the sign for Storm. Yes. And then Curtis sees it too, and then so does Samantha. They all see it, and they acknowledge it to each other with the with a nod and it's just this awesome shot where the water spouts are forming in the reflection of the oh, door yeah and you see her expression so that's the focus and it helps cover the CGI like it's brilliant yeah. filmmaking
0: i mean this is this is one of those scenes where my fear of extreme weather just is like he's just really capitalizing on it uh, i'm especially like tornadoes obviously terrifying Water spouts, mm-hmm. for some reason, more terrifying to me. I think <laughs> it's the combination of tornado with open water. Like sure. those two things are just like, no, I hate both of them. I hate them when they're together. <laughs> I hate them when they're separate. <laughs> but yeah, just I love the, the conception of it. That it's even that feels kind of weird that we're getting we're getting like what looks like a tsunami or some kind of wave coming. We're getting right, it the, recedes, formation the water
1: it. recedes from the beach.
0: Yeah. We're getting those waterspouts forming. There's not something necessarily violent about it, but we know that it is capable of that, which is this whole thing that's been building throughout this movie of, well, I'm faced with this situation that could turn deadly down the road. Right now, it doesn't seem too bad. And here it's exactly, we're getting that exactly and the, the forming of these, of these water spouts, which we see in the reflection of the sliding door. And I also just love that this is a moment where, as you mentioned, that they're all seeing it. I forgot that she signs storm. She learned that from Samantha early in the movie. So that's something. So she's taking something she learned from her mom in that scene.
1: And he's the one who asked. That's like a, a, a full family effort because he yeah. asks, what's the sign for storm? Right. And then she just uh, Samantha t- teaches it. I don't know why I keep calling her Jessica. <laughs> Jessica Chastain. That's why. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and then Samantha teaches Hannah. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. It's a full family affair.
0: And, of course, we get the scene of the hands uh, with the motor oil rain coming okay. down. It's this moment where it finally seems like they're all on the same page. Mm. Like, whether this thing is real or not, whether it's in his head, they have a full conception of it. And I think that's the weird hopefulness of it. Regardless of what this storm is, they're together in a way that they really haven't been, but that the film has been quietly building to... This mm-hmm. whole time. And this yes. is just the encapsulation of it. And I love that the last line is Samantha saying, okay, it's not, you know, it's not, again, maybe not directly, like, that's not necessarily hopeful, but it is this acknowledgement of, yeah. of what she's seeing, what he has been seeing or felt like he's been seeing. It's being together through whatever this horrible thing, whatever it's going to be, whether it's going to be dealing with his inpatient care, with Possibly getting a diagnosis of schizophrenia, the financial hardships, you know, maybe this weather phenomena, who knows, that seems plausible too. Whatever it is, they're together in a way that they haven't been. They're on the same page. And that's, to me, is the ultimate hope of the movie right. and why I love that last scene so much.
1: I totally agree. Look, Jeff said in the commentary, the look between them is the important part. Yeah. And and then they re- refused to discuss the meaning, and they said, deal with it. And so I dealt with it, and here's what I think. On first glimpse, you see Curtis come out of this storm shelter, and it feels very final, right? It feels like yeah. Curtis is coming out of this illness, and it feels very uh, very hopeful there. And so you, your initial thought is, oh, this is real. He was right, and it's happening. But- There's nothing to indicate that this isn't just another dream. And in fact, I think it is. But what's changed is that Samantha is there too. And she's there to help him protect Hannah. He acknowledges and accepts his family's support in facing the terror of mental illness together. Yeah, It is as happy an ending as possible, I think. For a disaster movie where someone at the end... Is still facing down the barrel of life destabilizing schizophrenia. Like it is, it is still the fact that they pull that off is incredible. And the, the ending with the sound of thunder playing over the credits with the then song recorded by Jeff's brother's band Lucero, it is just such a moment of quiet contemplation. Like you said, it ends with the phrase, okay, right? It's acceptance. It's just, it's it's it is it is not passionate in a way that is impactful right it is it is it lets you sit with what's happening and it just is so so great it's such a great capper like you said it has all been building to this even if you don't realize it as it's happening more and more we see him accepting the help from his wife until finally he can accept it fully here because he knows that they have the same goal it's it's just an incredible ending and now, Justin, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why it's not just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. <laughs> and I'm going to let you start.
0: Well, I'll say a big reason is because it deals with the horrors of the everyday. <laughs> There's a tangibility here to what Curtis could lose, whether that's his family, his livelihood, his job, his grip on reality, his... his mental health um these are all there's always this tension of these things being on the precipice of being lost mm-hmm. to me that is that is true horror <laughs> that is that is the horror of living <laughs> that is yeah. that is and i love the fact that you know a film like this you mentioned earlier in the episode about how there was this maybe, uh, this need to make something like, Oh, I want to make something genre based, mm-hmm. but obviously there will be, there'll be, you know, some real meaning and, 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 uh, truth behind it. Not that those things are mutually exclusive, but some, mm-hmm. sometimes they're viewed that way. And I just, I think this, this notion of using supernatural, you know, weather phenomena and all these weird hallucinations and dreams I think it goes beyond just being an issue film about a mental illness or about a particular issue. It becomes something that's abstract, that's undefinable, the way that all the forces in our lives create this, you know, ambiguous, shapeless stress in our, li- you know, uh, conflict in our lives. I just think that's such a brilliant use of of not just weather, but just like supernatural elements to tap into something real into the abstractions that rule our lives. I think that's really pointed. Again, you talk about weather phenomenon, I'm an easy mark for that, (laughs) not having gone through anything myself, but, you know, these living in new jersey now i'm surprised how many times i've gotten not just you know tornado watch but a flat out t- tornado warning and um and some touchdowns here and yeah. i'm just like oh this is so it's happening into something real for me in terms of that aspect of the horror i think the way it does dream sequences is brilliant because they feel very real in a way they converge with reality in a way we're not used to seeing in movies um i just think and i guess just to to sum up it's just drawing upon so many different aspects of horror. There are some jump scares here. Like that's, that's a part of it. There's, you know, there's unexpected images. There's this atmosphere to it that I mentioned before is something I really love in horror movies. It's not just one thing. It's, and it's always unexpected where the threat is coming from. I mean, usually, you know, you talk about like a slasher film, you know what the threat is, or you have an idea. Maybe there's a, you know, maybe there's a surprise, maybe somebody else is in on it. Here, we don't know where the threat is, where it's going to come from, but it feels like it's coming. And to me, that's that's the essence of horror right there. That is something that is uh, truly terrifying and and more real, I think, than, uh, than a lot of so-called horror movies uh, can really get into. So for all those reasons... It's up there
1: for me. And not a one of us is prepared. (laughs) (laughs) I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it is an acting showcase of two of our generation's greatest actors. Two incredibly demanding roles in opposite directions almost. For Mike in particular, I mean, they talked about how every day it felt like they were shooting the climax of the movie. Okay, today you're getting your arm torn off by a dog. Okay, today you're in a fight at the Lions Club. Okay, today you're being ripped out of your car. And for him to deliver on that and not make it feel exhausting to watch this movie every single time is incredible. He does such a great job of riding that fine line of terrifying and childish, of hopeful, of regressing in a way that your heart goes out to him and it does feel so out of his control and the relatability of of grasping for some kind of control in this uncaring world and capitalistic system that he is thrust into it is this great manifestation of the anxiety of living in our current day and age in 2011 when this comes out we're in the thick of the financial crisis natural disasters are on the rise thanks to climate change The breakdown that Curtis has becomes a reasonable reaction when we ignore the planet burning on the way to work so that we can glad hand the people pouring the gas in order to afford another month's rent or put food on the table or take care of medical expenses. And I mentioned Lars von Trier's Melancholia. And both of these movies are a natural reaction to our unsustainable lifestyle. It's not surprising to me that they came out in the same year because the storm – is coming right this is we are refusing to see our own doom here yeah and the depressive inability to conform to society comes from seeing them refuse that acknowledgement both in these movies and in real life nobody will see the storm that is so clearly on the horizon and where it becomes horrific and not merely nihilistic is that you almost hope the storm is real and curtis was prophetic Because otherwise, the reality of the situation is so bleak as to be devastating on its own. This man is going to have to leave his already low-income family with a special needs daughter in the middle of a financial crisis. These band-aid prophylactic attempts to protect yourself can only do so much before it comes crashing down. And maybe, much like in the story of Noah... The flood is cleansing what we've done to the planet and to each other. And the only thing more horrific than the storm is the thought that we deserve it, right? That this movie is asking, what have we done? How have we taken the world out of balance that this is happening to us? And you look around and I don't think it's that hard to see what what we are doing that is throwing the world out of balance in a way that makes this so personal i think to every single one of us it's incredible and that's why it's the best horror movie ever made
0: yeah very well said and you know but also the kind of thing i feel like i could recommend to people who don't like horror movies you know sure there you go there's enough like i was thinking about other family-centric horror movies like the shining or hereditary more recently and i'm like yeah i don't know if i could like if someone wasn't into horror i probably would not go with something like that but I could Mm -hmm. go with something like this and not maybe, and maybe just being the devilish person that I am, not prime them for (laughs) some of those more, you know, overtly
1: horror, uh, moments. So definitely, definitely. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Justin. This was a ton of fun. Please tell the people where they can find you, where they can listen to your shows, all that kind of stuff.
0: I, yeah, I'm kind of finishing podcasts at the moment. Uh, (laughs) so you can find me my, uh, my website is thecinemaverick.com. I'm also on Letterboxd at thecinemaverick. Cinema Joes, which is now on indefinite hiatus. Not sure if we'll get back together. Maybe someday, but not for the immediate future. You can find us at, at cinemajoes on X now, right? That's what we're calling Buh. It. Buh. Buh. <laughs> I'm calling it Twitter. And you can find my other podcast, which uh, George mentioned earlier, Podwork Angels, The Rush Hour, a podcast dedicated to Rush. That's on the PopBreak.com's PopBreak Today feed. We've now gone through every single album. There will also be a, a retrospective episode that I'm currently editing. Probably be out by the time this comes out. Nice. That is on the horizon. And yeah, that's what I got.
1: Awesome. Well, I definitely encourage you all to go check those things out. Even though Cinema Joe's is on hiatus, you can certainly go check out the back catalog wherein I appear several times. Indeed, yeah. So perfect places to start. Uh, and it's all very fun. It was, it was, I'm, I'm sad that the show was gone. So there you go. <laughs> um, as far as my plugs, you can find me on Blue Sky at Little Horror PHL. I am uh, moving away from X slash Twitter, but I am on Instagram and Letterboxd at that same username. Check out the show, the episodes of this show. There's been a lot of really fun episodes happening lately. We just did a really fun episode about Under the Silver Lake with Hayes Davenport, who is both a very funny comedian and a resident of Silver Lake. So that's Uh helpful. (laughs) and uh we also what did we just do we did i saw the devil with chris james who people might know from guys we did rocky horror picture show with brothy gupta who people might know as a writer for the simpsons i think by the time this comes out we'll have also released the vera drew episode uh, where we're talking about return to oz which will be a lot of fun so a lot of really great stuff coming out on the main feed and then if you're really enjoying the show You could check out the Patreon where we do all kinds of bonus stuff for just five dollars a month, including a very fun. We just did a, a spotlight episode on Session Nine. Oh, that's another really, really great horror movie in terms of the like putting you in the shoes of the the person that is having this breakdown. It's a really, really great one, and it was actually my first time watching it friend of the show, Eric from Soundtracker, um, Uwe Bollocks on Twitter slash X, he was like, yo, we got to watch this movie. And I was thrilled that he said that because it was actually very, very good. So how about that? <laughs> and I say that as not normally a, a, a supernatural kind of guy. But like I said on that episode, not to tangent at literally the sign offs here, <laughs> but I uh, I just thought it was interesting that since I consider myself not a supernatural fan, since starting this show a lot of the cream of the crop has been put in front of me in a way that has helped me to grow my appreciation of that subgenre. So maybe I should stop saying that I'm not a supernatural fan and just say, <laughs> I like the good stuff. Um, all right. That's it. Thanks everyone. Bye.